You're listening to the Scottish Football Forums podcast, the home of Scottish football banter. Hi, welcome to Scottish Football Forums podcast, season 11, episode 26. I'm John and joined tonight by John. How are you doing? Yeah, good, John. Um, good to be on the Monday again, especially with a special guest tonight. So, yeah, looking forward to this one. It's good. I always enjoy when we are both on. I think that joke of how you doing, John, never tires. Sometimes it's not a joke, but it just feels like a joke. I don't know. I don't uh, getting that. The listeners will get it because we sometimes do it. So it's when we try and do the two Rory's, then that works out horribly wrong. Yeah, because you get it wrong. Uh, yeah, that's that, exactly. Um, we are joined also by Scott. Miguel, how you doing? Good, mate. Again, it's another Monday, I'm no rough, which is a miracle, a minor miracle. I don't know, I must have been visited by Jesus last week and it's it's helped me out. <laughs> I feel amazing. So, what, you said you were going to drink last Thursday. Did you drink last Thursday though, or was it? Are you oh, off I, was it? Drinking, I was drinking the Thursday for the Europa League and then I was drinking when I was playing on Friday and then had two rough days, so <laughs> that's how Monday feels better. <laughs> so that's why, right? Okay, uh, we've only one Scott on tonight, uh, the other Scott can't make it. Uh, Aaron, how are you doing? Hey, thank you. We've only got one Aaron tonight as well, but we'll, we'll cope with the one. It was nice to have two last week, it was. Aaron was very nice, um, and she tried her first pie at the weekend. Did you see that? Yeah, I was very proud of uh, when she said she didn't like pies, she then admitted, she went, Oh, I've never had one. And, I don't know how you get to that stage in your life not having had a pie, especially when you go to the football. She said it was good. She was pleased with it. Yeah, I was quite stunned. I like that she tagged us in it. We, we actually now, have you noticed this? We actually get tagged more in food stuff now than football stuff. But I like the food stuff because the food stuff is always fun. Sometimes the football is not fun. Well, from a point of view of our domestic team at the moment, yes. But we have the international break, so we can forget about domestic football, can't we, this week? A bit, a bit. Maybe, maybe. Well the, well, the domestic game I went to the weekend, the pie was definitely more entertaining than the football. Did you steak get steak and chorizo? Steak and chorizo at oh, St Johnson. It was absolutely tremendous. It is the best pie in Scottish football. Yes. Yeah, uh, well, I was at football on Saturday. I was at the, the it's now famous game, Oven Meadow against Hockenheim Talbot, and the gazebo flying onto the pitch. So I've seen pitch invaders, I've seen many things end up on the pitch, but a gazebo Ended up on the pitch. Everyone's seen it on Twitter now. Um, friend of the podcast, Josh, it shared it. He was a game as well in the, the losing side, I should add. So, yeah, it, it was entertaining. Uh, and then we had the, the moment at Stenhouse, Mirstar and Albion. As well. Right, we should uh, go on to introducing our guests. So, this is a life, an ideal guest for this evening. Uh, we have Derek Ray. How are you doing? I'm very well, John. Thanks for the invitation. Great to be on. It's an international window, and I know for most people that's something to dread. For me, it's actually never a bad thing because the workload is a little bit lighter for me during an international period. So um, hence my ability to come and join you, great people. And yeah, international windows, not for everybody, but I don't mind them once in a while. On that subject then, do you get to enjoy the international weekend, or not weekend, but era as a fan, as opposed to doing your work? 
Um, when Scotland play, yes, absolutely. Uh, it depends, of course, if I do have a game, which I actually do on Friday, the same day Scotland plays. So I've got Italy against Switzerland, which is quite a big one for both countries, actually, in terms of World Cup qualification. But no, I, one of the great things about the international periods, for me, I get to be a Scotland fan. I don't generally cover Scotland games anymore. In fact, didn't when I was working for BT Sport because they didn't have the rights either. So it's win-win. It is indeed. Erin, I can see you desperate to get in because Derek said he's covering Italy, Switzerland, and you, you may as well get out of the way, please, now. I quite like Switzerland. I like their national side. I mean, you really do have to say that their flag's a big plus. Mm. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I well, I, I mean, I, I enjoy watching Switzerland, but uh, I didn't know you had that personal connection, Erin, but I, I do now. Um, I think they're going to be up against it on Friday, though, because they have a number a number of injuries, Embolo, Elvedi, and a few others. And, of course, Italy are the European champions. It's in Rome. So I would imagine that it'll be Forza Italia rather than Hop Schwitz. We'll see. Nice. So we've got a linguist on tonight, which makes <laughs> a change because we struggle to speak Scottish at the best of times. First question, actually, from one of our... Uh, listeners. So, James from Supernova Terrasphere. Now, you're famous for your pronunciation in terms of you are one of the, well, you are the best commentators, as far as I'm concerned, at pronouncing names correctly. But he had a question about, obviously, FIFA. You do FIFA Mm -hmm. as well as the commentary. So, we all call Bruno Fernandes, Bruno Fernandes. But supposedly in FIFA, we've all got it wrong because it's Bruno Fernandes. That's right. Yes. And well, I'll tell you the, the background to it. And thanks for mentioning pronunciations because they are dear to my heart. I come from a languages background. I've just always proceeded on the basis that we would all, wouldn't we, want our names to be pronounced as we pronounce them if we were, you know, lucky enough to be on a worldwide game like FIFA, you know, if, if um, you know, Scott, for example, or, or John, if, if Scott were to hear Scott Miguel, you know, every time he touched the ball, or John were to hear John Blasdale rather than Bleasdale, then, you know, he'd probably be saying, let's change that and get it right. So in the case of, of Bruno, yeah, it, it is Bruno Fernandes. That's the way it's said in Portuguese. Now, this happens a lot, I have to say, in the Premier League world. Players come to England and decisions are made by, I don't really know uh, who, but by people who come together and decide this is how we're going to pronounce this name. And they're very often quite far away from the actual truth. I think as Scots, we're quite sensitive to it because even within the UK context, I think we've all been aware of Scottish names, Scottish places, you know, Scottish towns that have been wrongly pronounced by broadcasters operating from London. I mean, you know, think about, I, I remember I used to hear uh, one of the, the mountains in the Cairn Gorms that uh, we certainly in, in the Aberdeen area are very familiar with, Loch Nagar. You know, it's quite a well-known mountain, Loch Nagar. And there was a, 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 a racehorse that um, used to do the rounds in the 70s, and all the English broadcasters would call it Loch Nagar. Loch Nager. And that's just an example of what I think um, I'm talking about here, is that we want to be authentic, we want to be right, and we want to show respect. And so that's where it really comes from. And I did Bruno's name long before he ever joined Manchester United. So I first recorded it, I think, for FIFA 19. And I always check, I always 
try to talk to native speakers or use my own linguistic ability to to make sure that I'm on the right track. And when I was in Scotland, I would always talk to new players from other cultures. And the first thing I would ask them in the tunnel was, can you just say your name for me? So, yeah, Bruno Fernandes. I know it's probably not going to catch on with a lot of people, but um, that's how it is on FIFA and that's how it shall remain. And it's the, and it's the correct, correct way as well. At least once a week, I see some, normally a 15-year-old boy, who I oh, yeah. is uh, maybe not going to do the best in his GCSEs, having a proper argument with you about the fact that oh, it's wrong yeah. because he's decided you're wrong and that's it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I try. In fact, what I've, I've come to do nowadays, Aaron, is uh, there's a clip of Bruno saying his own name. It's actually a BT Sports clip that he did for them a few months ago. And he starts by saying, hello, I'm Bruno Fernandes. And I forget what he says after that. But um, so I have that clip at the ready and I'll often say, uh, OK, well, here's Bruno saying his own name. So um, do you want to do you want to belabor the point? Or And funnily enough, some people will double down on it and say, ah, well, but that's not how we say it. And I think, okay, so it's not how... So who's this we, by the way, um, compared to <laughs> him? Yeah, compared to... <laughs> understand. It's worse when they start saying, no, but in Scotland, we would... But it says who? I well, don't it's, understand. No. In a, in a different... You still... People's names are their names. It doesn't really right. matter where you are. I do find that um, bizarre that... It happens so often as well. You would think that maybe they could just check. Like, yeah, and, and, your Twitter and you can see it. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it hasn't happened for a couple of weeks, but it, it will undoubtedly again soon. And listen, I can understand it when a name is genuinely hard to pronounce. Not everybody's going to get that right. But I don't think Bruno Fernandes is that hard to pronounce. You know, it's actually pretty easy to pronounce. It's just that people have now got into the 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 bad habit of saying it in an anglicised way and I seem to be the only person who who wants to go against that. Alan is it interesting? Is it it's Alan Coyce is not who just cannot get Morales's name right. Every week it's something different. <laughs> I think, well, I think it's been Morales at the moment, but I do think it's just a basic thing to ask a player. You know, if you're not sure, how do you pronounce your name? Because you hear so many names pronounced differently yeah. on different broadcasters. And I just think it's, you know, a fairly basic ask. And yeah, it's not tonight, able to argue with someone else about how their name is pronounced. Yeah, you're right. It, it, it should be. But unfortunately, we don't live in a perfect world. And um, as I, say, I don't mind taking the flack for it. Uh, it's something I've, I've grown used to. But as I will say, I'd rather be right than popular on this one. Exactly. Well, you see your um, example of how my surname is mispronounced. That was how my name was spelled in Sensible World of Soccer on the Sega Mega Tribe back in the day. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> yeah. they used to take out um, the first uh, letter of your, um, yeah. the first will replace it with the next one. So, yeah, just a bit of useless <laughs> information. And then we've got Chris, director of podcasting, who has a Polish heritage. Mm, and his yeah. surname always gets my name thrown incorrectly. Always. So... There's another example. I, I, and we've I, I, all heard people yeah. say, have you been to Mill and Gavi? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, and I know, and, and it's funny, you know, Mill Guy obviously is one that nobody outside Scotland is going to get right unless they have that knowledge. But once they have that knowledge, then there's no reason to, to get it wrong. And what I would say is I don't think that agents help when it comes to this kind of thing because I've – um, run into a few examples of agents actually advising their clients, namely the players, that it would maybe be to their advantage to change their name pronunciation a little bit, you know, for the um, for the English language audience. But um, you know, most players don't, and they're very proud of of their names, and they should be. 
I think there was even a situation at Sky at the weekend I'd heard about. Uh, Graham Souness was covering the Man City, Man, Man City, Man U game, and he was talking about Juan Bissaka. He got the name wrong and then said, or oh, something along the lines of whatever he thought it was, and went, oh, whatever it is anyway, it doesn't really matter. Almost very flippant, uh, which is how would he like it if his name wasn't pronounced correctly? That. Well, that's respect, isn't it? That's, exactly. that's what it comes down to. Uh, how did FIFA come about then? Because for the young team, as we like to call them, yes. they might be more familiar with you with FIFA. How did that come about? It came about completely by chance. And I know there are some people who don't believe me when I say this, because as you may or may not know, I left the BT Sport team in Scotland in 2017. And part of the reason was we wanted to come back to the USA as our base. We'd been away for almost a decade, but we hadn't sold our house. For family reasons, we wanted to be back. And um, I remember when I was saying my goodbyes, I remember in particular having a chat with Stephen Cragen. And I remember he, he was saying in front of a few other people, he said, I think Derek's got something lined up he's not telling us. And genuinely at that point, I didn't really have anything uh, specific lined up. I had had conversations with a few colleagues at various channels where I'd worked before in the USA and and people who I knew in the business. But um, the FIFA thing hadn't matured at that point. In fact, it came out of the blue. I'd been back from uh, being UK based around, when was it? November of 2017. And I got this mysterious email from a third party saying that they represented a video game. They couldn't say what it was or exactly, you know, what the connection was, but they were connected. And my name had come up and there was definitely an interest in talking to me about a a project. So it it sort of, you know, stalled for a few weeks and then it came back up and this this, uh, third party said, okay, I can tell you a bit more now. It is actually the big one. It's EA Sports, it's FIFA, and they would like to talk to you. And the reason why they wanted to talk to me specifically was the Champions League was coming back in play for FIFA. Now, I had been the main commentator for the Champions League for ESPN around the world um, many years before that, from around 2003 until 2009, before I moved back to the UK to work for ESPN UK and then BT Sport. And uh, there was a producer there who had remembered that and he'd sort of filed it away and thought that my voice would be a good fit for the game if they got the Champions League rights. So they were in the process of putting it all together. And to cut a long story short, I went out to Vancouver, their headquarters. Uh, I met them. I did an audition for them with the game in the background. And they made the decision to to offer that, that gig to me for the Champions League. But the, uh, the one proviso was, and this was quite difficult, I had to promise not to tell anybody apart from my you know nearest and dearest so I had to sort of walk on eggshells for about six months while we did some initial recording um, knowing that the announcement wasn't going to be made until June July of that year so I had to make up quite a lot of excuses as to what I was doing you know I remember somebody asking me saying you're 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 in a studio a lot at the moment what, what are you doing in the studio and I said oh just a just a small project you know just something that yeah, you'll, you'll find out about it in time, but it's nothing nothing too big. You know, only the biggest thing I've probably ever done because obviously the game is iconic. And as you mentioned, the young team, uh, young people definitely know what FIFA is. You know, for my generation, maybe less so because we didn't grow up with, well, I didn't grow up with video games. And there'll be people in the middle on that one. But uh, yeah, it quickly um, hit me that I was part of, something pretty big and pretty special in terms of the football world. 
it's evolved a bit for the first time I've ever played FIFA. Again, this is Mega Drive days when you could run away from the referee. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think the um, graphics have come on. But in terms of falling, I mean, people talk about falling on from other voices. I mean, you followed on from Motti and Martin Tyler. That's a mm. pretty um, good act of all. That must have been a nice boost to your ego. Not that you're egotistical, not at all. Well, I, I hope not. I definitely try not to be. Um, being from Aberdeen, it's it's a bit hard. You know, you tend to always be reminded. You know, you're 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 from Aberdeen. You kind of kind of get or carried away like again. Um, sorry, so jumping into the Doric there for for a few for a few words. Hopefully, everybody understood that. But it's okay, um, we had Iona Fife on the other week, and Iona Fife ah, yes. doing the same. So it's it's brilliant. We like yeah. all that. Yeah, no, but I mean, as you, you mentioned, you know, Martin is somebody I respect tremendously. Martin Tyler, I've known him for a long time, and uh, I was working on the game with him, so he was doing the main part of it when I first came on board and had been there a long time, and, and Motti, obviously, as well, who I know and have bumped into down the years. So, yeah, to, to be part of that is a huge honour, and, you know, certainly not lost on me the magnitude of the, the gig and I've been lucky enough to be part of it uh, since then 19, 20, 21 we're into 22 now with Lee Dixon first of all as my partner now with Stuart Robson on the, the new edition of the game and it's a very creative process working with a small team with a producer and a sound man and then my co-com and just trying to come up with concepts and, and ways of expressing things that are new and different and of course the, the big challenge is that I'm not actually watching the game as I'm doing it you know whereas for a live football match I'm watching the game I'm in control of everything that I'm saying for FIFA I'm providing a kind of a building block that hopefully matches up with what is actually happening in the game at that particular time but I do have to remind people who uh, criticize me or, or say that I'm, I'm overly scolding of their performances that I'm not in fact in their living room at that exact time <laughs> doing this scolding so uh, that's maybe important to point out <laughs> see what the likes of that Derek yeah hey, obviously you're talking about your co-cobs have always changed um and obviously you'll just have to run with it yourself. But they're about to take pride in the fact that uh, Alex Scott's getting involved this year as well, eh? Yeah, no, that's great. Alex has come on board as the pitch side reporter. So um, she comes in every so often with updates from the other games. And yeah, I don't mind telling you that in the month of May, I had to mention Alex's name quite a lot because if you think about all the different teams in FIFA um, there was quite a lot of okay let's get an update from Selhurst Park here's Alex Scott right let's get an update from Celtic Park here's Alex Scott Alex is at the ready with an update from Ibrox Alex what's the score you know so obviously we do a lot of that uh, over and over again uh, but it, it's been nice to have her voice in the game we had a question on the back of that actually it was so how many times per year do you spend uh, yeah, how many times do you spend per year recording for FIFA in terms of days, weeks? Well, it, it varies by the year, but typically since I started, on average, it's been somewhere around 20 to 25 days. Now, that's not in a row. That's not you know a block of 25 days all at once. Um, we spread it around during the, the course of the year. But... Um, Roughly speaking, 20 to 25 days. And we're talking, you know, full days. So, you know, vocally, it's quite 
challenging and you want to be challenged doing it, but the voice has to be right for it. And we do different things at different times of the day. Sometimes it's, you know, player names at different intensities. At other times, it's scenarios to do with um, what's happening on the pitch, whether it's a free kick or a corner or saves by the goalkeeper. And just trying to vary it as much as possible and coming up with lines that will stand the test of time. Because, you know, it's inevitable that after a while, you're going to hear some of the same lines and people are going to say, oh, why do you keep saying that? And I will say, well, I only, I only said it once. <laughs> you might have heard it 50 times, but I only said it once. <laughs> so the, ne- the next big thing we want to see on FIFA, and hopefully you can pull some sway here, we want to see more Scottish stadiums, the, the, the actual proper stadiums. Well, I, I wish I, I had the power. Unfortunately, as, as the mere commentator, uh, I only get to, to decide what I say in the game. Um, so, so that's not within my gift. But yeah, would be lovely. So basically, we'll need to dream on if we want Petodre. <laughs> I don't know, honestly, how that all works. I, I'm really not sure how they, they put that all together. We're waiting for the new stadium for, well, that'll be FIFA 2030 by that point. Uh, might, yeah, maybe beyond that. Who knows? <laughs> we were talking about um, how you succeeded um, in, in FIFA, uh, Motson and, uh, and Tyler. Um, when when you were leaving BT Sport, you know, people were saying, um, who's going to be following Derek Ray? Because you mm. have made such a great impression. Because even though we know who you really support, that never came across in your commentary. Um, that showed the respect that you had. But um, I think your successor, Rory Hamilton, has done a very good job. He's not tried his copy. He's just been his own man. And I think mm-hmm. he's really stepped up to the plate very well. I totally agree. And when I announced I was leaving and, you know, I spoke to my colleagues at BT Sport about it, you know, they immediately said, yeah, we're, you know, we're going to have to to find somebody to, to fill your shoes. And, uh you know, we're, we're, we're looking and I didn't want to get involved in that discussion, even though they did say, um, you know, maybe you, you have an opinion. I, I didn't really want to, to, to voice it too loudly, just out of fairness, because there were a few people obviously in, in the running. But I don't mind saying that deep down, I, I kind of hoped that they would go after Rory because uh, I'd known him for a while, known him since I first made the move back to the UK. He'd been doing some stuff for Sky and a few other entities, and of course is versatile doing rugby as well as football. And I just thought it, it had a certain logic behind it. And he's a great guy, and he's very passionate about Scottish football. He's got a good voice, got a nice sound. And yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled that that worked out. I'm obviously disappointed that even from afar, BT Sport lost the rights because I was part of that from the very beginning. It's exciting to be part of a new project and a new way of doing and thinking. And, um, you know, it did go through my mind uh, when we made the decision in 2017 that BT Sport might lose the rights. It wasn't the main thinking behind the decision, because as I said, that was for for family reasons. But part of me thought, well, you know, it's up in the air. It could be a shared deal again, or it could go to one broadcaster or the other, and it went to Sky Sports and not to to BT Sport. But um, no, really happy for Rory that he's now been able to settle into a rhythm as the, the Scottish football commentary voice on BT Sport. Can I just say, Derek, my 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 earliest memories of you commentating in games yeah. aren't that aren't that great because Uh-oh. I'm a Celtic season ticket holder yeah and I go to all the home home games or the home European games but every time we went away from home in Europe 
<laughs> it was your voice that was telling me the disastrous things uh, that were happening. But you know what, Scott? That's actually so typical of what commentators go through. We tend to get blamed for bad results associated with bad performances <laughs> and I'm guessing that might have been what the period around what uh, 2009, 2010, 2011 that kind of thing yeah because we did a lot of Celtic away games at that point on mostly ESPN UK uh, and then of course BT Sport and they had a horrendous away record in Europe so I think we went into just about every game almost half expecting that, that Celtic would lose those games. I'm pretty sure the memory that sticks in my head is Chad Uray with Fraser Foster and Ren. Oh, away. yeah. Yeah, I remember that game, yeah. I just remember looking at the telly and hearing you commentate and I'm going, what is what has actually happened to you? What am I witnessing? <laughs> I still cannot believe that he's passed the ball past Foster. And he's missed it. And, oh, Terrible, yeah. No, but but that that is is definitely part of it, and I think that you know commentators understand that fans are very passionate about these things, and uh, we can be perceived as uh, you know good luck charms, but also bad luck charms, as as I undoubtedly was for for Celtic for a few years covering those European away games. Where's the well, obviously that Celtic defence, they were like statues all the time. Yeah. Uh, where's the best place you've been away from home, like? to go and commentate a game? Um, my favourite place or, or just, you know, well, looking at your it favorite from place a personal most, point of view? Go for a random one as well. Aye. Okay. Um, my favourite place anywhere to commentate from is the, the Zignali Duna Park in Dortmund. I mean, that is my favourite. And I've always said if I ever had the choice to, to pick a stadium to go out on, I probably would pick that one because I've been lucky enough to be there on, on many big days and nights, predominantly for the Bundesliga's world feed. And there's nowhere like that. You know, there's nowhere that just comes to life the way Dortmund does. So so that would be sort of a personal favourite. But there have been a few, you know, other ones here and there. I mean, one is the the Centenario in, in Montevideo in uh, Uruguay. And again, you'll think... That that one is is a bit left field, but I was there with Australia when they eventually managed to make it to the World Cup for the first time in three decades. It was a two-legged playoff against Uruguay. Imagine having a two-legged playoff against Uruguay and having to prevail to go to the World Cup. Well, they did, and I was at both games uh, in Montevideo and in Sydney, and and just something about Uruguay really resonated with me uh, and the passion that such a small country has. I think, again, this comes back to being a Scot. I think, you know, we think of ourselves as a passionate football country. Uruguay is even smaller than Scotland, but they're kind of at the forefront of international football passion, you know, when you think about the first World Cup in 1930. And so I felt immensely privileged to be able to go there, to go to the Centenario, this iconic stadium. It's nothing to write home about in terms of looking at it, but you can feel the soul of football when you go there so yeah that would be on my list as well see as a football purist surely 2030 world cup has to be at Uruguay yep I agree I agree I don't think it should even be a debate I think that I know that's the you know England wants to to host it in tandem with other home nations but for me if you do have football in your blood, then it, it should be South America. It should be Uruguay. Maybe, again, with other countries. would have to be with other countries. But, yeah, anybody with any romance at all would would surely think that. I don't know if everybody agrees or if anybody disagrees on, on this panel. Definitely. I, I can remember being a child at school and 
buying all these books that were like about the World Cup and then you're yeah. reading about this country that I've never heard of before and it was Uruguay and you're going through it and you're like totally fascinated, honest to God, it's mad. Like you would read Ladybird books. The Ladybird books. No, no, mate, no. these are real big hardback books. Oh. Oh, hardback ones. Aye, they're brilliant. So I <laughs> Only thing you could get me reading about is football. Anything else couldn't do it. But it was brilliant. But that's the power of football, isn't it? And and it's funny. I, I talk to a lot of people who got their geography lessons from football. You know, from a young age. And maybe they they weren't interested in geography or history from a conventional teaching point of view. But bring football into it, and, mm-hmm. and suddenly you know things do register. So yeah, it has its uses across the board. Flags. Flags, yeah. flags. I yeah. all with flags because of that. Honestly, yeah. God, it's mad. I tell my wife all the time, this is why men who like football we're so good at geography. I think you're onto places. something. Yeah, that, that, we, we know, not just men. Sorry, Erin, apologies. But football I fans. Geography, anyway, it's one of my better topics. But it does help because <laughs> you just it? learn, like you just pick up little things, like the population of some random little place you're playing. You know where like places are. I really like it. And you get to go to some pretty cool places or Reka mm-hmm. a few times. But generally you get, you know, there are trips there and there are good places to go and it's a great experience to be able to go and do that and to see things. You know, having the Euros kind of all over, obviously COVID changed it quite a lot. But the concept of that, I actually think was quite good. And I think the 2026 World Cup, there's America, Canada, Mexico sharing, aren't they? It's mm-hmm. going to be yes. I think that'll be fantastic. I think they will put on a brilliant show. Uh, well, we are just getting called the 48 team con, um, the concept. Yeah. That's my fear. I think, they, as Aaron said, they will put on a good show. And, and obviously, I'm quite close to that situation geographically and otherwise. My big fear is that they're going to do something that they shouldn't do, which is make fans travel, you know, across time zones too much, you know, so six-hour flights from one game to another. And it's one thing, going back to the early World Cup days for me, what I loved was that the venues for teams were never far apart so that, you know, the groups would be organized so you had, you know, say in in Argentina 1978 or uh, West Germany 1974, you, you had cities that were maybe an hour apart. And so as a fan, you could base yourself in one of those cities and basically see the games easily and make a little holiday out of it. Now it's impossible to do that. Now they want to make fans travel you know, from coast to coast, which I think is a bit ridiculous. But unfortunately, I think will probably happen in the case of the US, Canada and Mexico. We may be getting slightly political here with this, but I would imagine it's going to be predominantly the US hosting and Mexico and Canada will get the scraps. It will be, yes. I think that's already pretty much been decided that there will not be too much. Inv- you know, Canada and Mexico are part of the, were part of the bid, are part of the tournament, but it'll be 85% USA. Do you get to cover Mexican games, actually? As part, or not? That's a great question. No, I, I don't. But the one thing that would surprise uh, people not in the USA is that the biggest ratings for any football come from Mexican games in the USA. Now, obviously, it's predominantly a Mexican-American audience watching them, but it tells you a lot about the passion. When it comes to the end of the season and you have the big Mexican club games, or if you have Mexican national team games, they are the games that that rate, and the, the ratings are predominantly for the Spanish-language broadcasts. So, you know, we definitely think 
on the English language side that we've made inroads, those of us who've worked on TV here, in my case on and off for a long time, we've made inroads in terms of getting Anglo fans, if you like, Anglo uh, or English-speaking American fans more interested in the sport. Um, everything is still dwarfed by Mexican football and the audience for it. Is that partly because, obviously, for a long period, there wasn't a professional league in America, so they would have watched Mexican football instead of anything else? I think it's more just that there are so many Mexican-Americans. And just think of it this way. Imagine if you had, in a country like the USA, with its huge population, imagine if you had 50 million Scots. You know, imagine if you, if you had 50 million Scots who lived in America and there was no football. So what did they want to watch? They wanted to watch their own football. And so you, you'd have Scottish football everywhere. Uh, now, we don't have 50 million Scots. You know, there are Scots, but they tend to kind of, um, you know, cease to be Scots after a while, if you know what I mean. They sort of lose their identity from one generation to another. Whereas with the Mexican population, that doesn't happen as much. And it's passed on from, you know, parent to child and then down the generations. And, um, and of course, there continues to be a big influx of, of people from Mexico to the USA. So I think that will be a feature of, of the sport. And to be honest, it's helped the US national team as well, because many of the best young players who come through are um, children of Mexican immigrants. Can you on you go, John. No, on you go. No, I was just going to um, change it slightly, because you also went out to America in uh, in 91. Now, the yeah. World Cup before that, Italian 90, they had a hopeless World Cup, losing all three games. What have you made of the, um, the transition from then to now? Oh, it's night and day, John. I mean, 1990, I watched them with interest because I had a, an eye on the USA thinking I might end up there. I didn't know that I would have the chance, but I was hoping it might come my way. Um, they were a bit of a ragtag and bobtail team in 1990. Funnily enough, they, they ran Italy very close in that World Cup, but it was <laughs> it was a bit fluky um, that they managed to stay in the game. And they lost all three matches, as you said. Everything was then geared towards 94 and hosting the World Cup. And they gave a decent fist of it with Bora Milutinovic as their coach, with a few emerging players, you know, people like John Harks coming through at that time, and Alexi Lalas and, and people like that. And from that point on, they, they've got steadily better. Of course, MLS came into being in 1996, which helped having a professional league. And I don't think MLS gives itself enough credit for that because it wants to be something a bit bigger than just a sort of a, a developmental league or a, a league to help the U.S. national team. But they certainly have done that. And there have been these ups and downs. Now, of course, the last World Cup, they missed out on. And, you know, this is something that if you talk to young American fans, they just can't work out what happened because they have grown up believing that it's almost a birthright for the, the USA to be at the World Cup because, as I said, they, they've been at every World Cup since 1990 prior to 2018. They should have made it to 2018, frankly. It was all their own doing. Uh, it's quite forgiving in CONCACAF, even though there are some hard games, but the overall qualification is quite forgiving. I will say, um, you know, what would you rather be? Would you rather be Scotland in a European context trying to sneak in along with some of these much bigger more powerful nations or would you rather be in CONCACAF with the USA, Mexico, etc knowing that there are three places and then a playoff place. It's a little bit easier I think. Um, but now the sport has come a tremendous way in the last three decades and you know it's on the map now and the sport has played a lot, it's watched a lot it still struggles in comparison with the traditional sports especially the NFL, the NBA you'd have to say those two are you know, are probably uncatchable. 
But um, I think what would surprise most people is the availability of football. I always say that your average American fan now who's really into the sport, he or she is now probably better versed in world football than the equivalent in the UK. And I say that just because of the availability. It's pretty hard in the UK to actually have access to a lot of the football from around the world without paying through the nose for it. In the USA, you can do that relatively simply. And um, yeah, the, the players have come through. The league has helped. Um, and I think the standard of the national team is now you know, pretty respectable, notwithstanding that mishap and not qualifying for 2018. It's interesting because obviously you love your Bundesliga. Yes. And the link between oh, yes. American players and the Bundesliga, you've got Pulisic, you've got Reiner, you've got these guys coming through now. A lot of them are playing in the Bundesliga or have played in the Bundesliga. Is there a, a possibility when we look at this young team, because it's a lot of young players in that USA national team, yep. they reckon they can win 2030? I think that would be too much of a heavy lift. I, I, I honestly think it would be. Um, Americans are optimists in a way that we Scots are not. You know, we Scots tend to kind of want to talk ourselves down. They don't have that feeling in the USA. It's much more talk things up and believe. You know, if you don't believe, you won't ever do it, which yeah, is quite a, quite a good attitude to have. But I think realism taking over would suggest that uh, that would be too soon. I mean, it may happen at, at some stage. You may get to the point where that could happen. The big difficulty is that I think the some of the best athletes in the USA choose not to play football. They, they obviously play the other sports that are big here. Whereas I think in most of the rest of the world, football is where it's at. Football is where you want to go to if you are athletically inclined and are encouraged to do that from a fairly young age. So I think they'd have to be very lucky to, to win the World Cup. It's not impossible, but uh, I think more likely would be, um, you know, getting to the quarterfinals, which they've done before, to be fair. Women's football is very popular out in America. Mm-hmm. And it was actually one point, if not still, um, more popular than men's football. And, um, you know, they've dominated the World Cup as well. They've won the last couple. Um, and Scotland are obviously at a stage where we're starting to properly grow the game, having um, reached... Euro 2017 and World Cup 2019. Just um, what would you make of the rise of the women's game in general? Well, I've covered it quite a lot. I I was at the last uh, Women's World Cup in France uh, for Fox Sports as one of the commentators and, in fact, covered the... um, the, the milestone Women's World Cup in 1999, that's the one everybody talks about when the US had, you know, these tremendous players all together, people like Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy, and they they won on home soil. And that was a real eye-opener because it was the first time I had ever seen women's football played in front of these packed houses, you know? And, and that was just a concept that was unheard of in pretty much every other country in the world. And... I think it's sometimes overplayed a little bit in Europe how popular women's football is. I'm not saying that it's unpopular, it's not. But week to week, it does struggle a bit. Week to week, it's not getting these huge crowds. And and men's football would be watched more if you were to add the TV figures together. And if you look at men's World Cups over women's World Cups, etc., etc. But um, it's still as much bigger in the USA, women's football, than it is anywhere else. And they are the trailblazers. And they want to remain the trailblazers. But there's no guarantee that's going to happen because the rest of the world is catching up. And, you know, it was great to see Scotland at the last Women's World Cup. I'm just a bit sad and a bit, um, you know, of a mind that it may be the last go for Scotland at a World Cup for a while. And and I was, you know, 
Honestly, if you had seen me, I was in France with my colleagues, not at that Scotland-Argentina game at the Women's World Cup. I was at a different game uh, in, in Reims, and I was just watching it with my colleagues. And I had one of the biggest meltdowns, personally, I've ever had watching that, you know, with Scotland on the cusp of making it through. And I was thinking to myself, the women's team is not the men's team. The women's team has a different mentality and outlook, and they are going to do it. And, and I have... Complete faith in in Aaron Cuthbert and Kim Little and Rachel Corsi and these players, and honestly, it was like watching our men's team. It was it was like revisiting Scottish national team history. Same thing again. And you know, I don't blame anybody for that. It can it can happen, but oh, it was it was so <laughs> demoralising as a Scot to watch that. Um, but no, I I think that it would really benefit the Scottish clubs to continue and to try to do more on this front, but at least to continue promoting women's football because, first of all, it's the right thing to do. Um, There are girls and women out there who play football at a good standard and it it should not be seen as a men's sport. I I hope it's not seen as just a a men's sport anymore. You know, Uh, maybe a few dinosaurs see it that way, but but it it shouldn't be viewed in that context. But even if you want to look at it from the point of view of, um, you know, the economic aspect, it is an enrichment potentially economically for a football club as well to have a, a women's section. So, you know, it's morally the right thing to do. Um, it's it's making sure that you're in tune with society, number two, and economically it can be good. So why why wouldn't you do it? I think I've not let it televised now bridges a gap between, like, women thinking about doing it to actually being able to go and do it because you can see their heroes now on the TV yeah. doing the exact same thing. And the likes of John and Ern, they've had people on before talking about women's football and the podcast evolves with that kind of stuff. And see being able to hear from that point of view, it is, for me, it's amazing, eh? Because it's giving yep. young girls hope as well. That, that's the great thing about 1999 in the USA. When, when the US won that, I mean, there are you know players nowadays in the women's league here in the USA who will say that was the reference point for them. You know, they remember watching that as seven, eight-year-olds, and they were determined that they wanted to be footballers. You know, and I, I do hope that Scotland qualifying for the Women's World Cup, even though they they didn't do as well as we all hoped, I hope that that might resonate in the same way for for young girls uh, in Scotland who were part of it and, and made them realise that, yeah, they can break down barriers and do things that other generations hadn't done before. And I'll tell you what, the one thing about Women's World Cups that I've found is that once I've, I've you know, been there to, to do them, um, they seem just like Men's World Cups in terms of the, the dynamics, just as important, just as tense, um, you get totally swept up in them. And uh, that was absolutely the case for me in, in France at the last Women's World Cup as well. So, um, yeah, long may they prosper. I think the important thing is that we keep on saying in the podcast is the youth of today now can look up to female yeah. players as opposed to having to look at male players as a role models. It's fantastic yeah. that way. That's the, the biggest thing, I think, as well. You just look at have to look at Hamden, John, when you see... Andy Robertson on the left-hand side, Rachel Cost on the other, at the main entrance, that's just that's a great statement. Yeah, yeah, it uh, is. And even for ourselves, we have readily admitted when maybe what, I don't know, prior to the World Cup, we did touch on women's football a wee bit. I think we'll be honest. We we are enriched by having guests on from the women's game because we learn more as well. Like, we've learned so much more from having guests on. And actually, the guests we get on women's football, in terms of football point of view, we get women that are still playing. We get coaches that are still involved. But in the men's game generally they are constricted, restricted by fan media 
yeah. a club they, they can't do this kind of stuff so it, we love it like it's brilliant from that point of view as well yeah, no, I'm, I don't doubt that. And the one thing I've noticed, I've actually worked with quite a lot of um, women as co-commentators, you know, former players, very good players uh, in, in the USA predominantly. And the one thing I notice is that they are actually a bit more analytical than their male counterparts, that they're not afraid to talk about tactical things expansively and to try to explain tactical things expansively. Um, I'm not saying that every every male co-commentator is guilty of not being tactical but there's sometimes a reticence or sometimes a kind of a feeling that you're you're giving away state secrets if you if you speak too much about it but i found that that women are, are much more lucid when it comes to to getting to the point of that i worked with um there's a woman by the name of ali wagner who, who probably is not well known at all in scotland but one of the best footballers of her generation played for the u.s women's national team um after 1999 after they'd won the world cup and she was my partner for the the men's world cup in russia in uh, in 2018 and um she was brilliant you know she did her homework she you know spent just about every waking hour for two months going over tactical setups and and just couldn't talk enough about it and you know there will be other examples of that coming through i think in the years ahead. I just realised, I think when I spoke about the last Women's World Cup, I said 2018, when of course it was 2019. But um, the pandemic has, as I think, uh, had an effect on the on the time recognition of everything. These you know, Going back over these last few years, it, it all seems as though it's stood still for a while. It still seems weird to say it was 2020 when it was played in 2021. That's weird. Yeah, I had to every day on the air during the Euros. I had to say, yeah, Euro UEFA Euro 2020, and of course, I'd have five people saying it's 2021. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I didn't. I don't make up the rules. I don't yeah. get to decide that. I do yeah. think though that because kind of COVID just took out a year of everyone's life. When I yeah. say a year ago, I mean two, because yeah. nothing happened, and I think everyone seems to kind of do that. And hopefully, next year when we move into um, past the winter, we'll be looking at having certainly put it behind us, hopefully. But definitely, I think you know, a whole year was just vanished. And yeah. for lots of people, there was a massive change because you know, the usual things that you did, if you go to the football every week, that just disappeared. And then it wasn't even on TV for ages. I got quite into the Bundesliga because it was the first football to restart. Yeah, good. We had a we devised, I say we, I had no part in devising this, but there was a complex system of points awarded because obviously if someone picked a team to win it, it was going to be pretty obvious who was potentially going to win it. Yeah. So instead, you got, everyone got a number, then everyone's name got drawn and then you were allowed to pick a team, but there was a point system which made it fair. So if you got someone who was bottom, you could technically still get a prize. I went with Bayern because I just thought they're going to win all their games and they did, did me very proud. <laughs> But I think a lot of people... Oh, well done, Edward, in that one. That was a bold choice. Bold. <laughs> well, it, with the point system, they had to win. I think they had seven... They had nine games left, and they had to get 27 points to win me the points. And everybody said, no, it's not going to happen, and they did. So I think a lot of people, though, were probably watching German football, Spanish football, just because there wasn't, you know, any sign of football starting again here. And I really enjoyed mm -hmm. it. I've been to Bayern Hoffenheim, and it was absolutely brilliant. The experience is just, it's so different. I think they make a massive yeah. effort for the fans there. I think the whole thing was great. Bayern went 2-0 down 
They were 2 0 down at half time, and then they came back and they five won two. Five two. Yeah. I was commentating on the game, Aaron. I, I remember it very well. It was a uh, first half full of mistakes for Bayern, and then of course they just did what Bayern do and uh, and decided to yeah turn on I think the. Lewandowski scored the four, and I think it might have been the four quickest goals that had been scored. The Bundesliga was brilliant, and I also saw on my phone um, during that game when I was just having a quick look away from the action. I saw. Now McGinn scored a lovely goal, and I saw Scott McKenna put in a goal from the halfway line against Tilly. That was quite gay for me. Well, I know you never take your eyes off Aberdeen, no matter what, even at the Allianz Arena in front of uh, watching Bayern Hoffenheim with 75,000. It still would be Aberdeen first for you, which is great. Um, but no, on, on the Bundesliga, I think you're right. I, I think the, the restart when it came was opportune for the Bundesliga, and they were almost the, the blueprint for other leagues in terms of how to to come back. And I noticed at that time there was an awful lot of interest from people in the Bundesliga, which is why I did a series of videos on social media, which I called Back Garden Bundesliga, just trying to provide a bit of a window into the league because I was well aware that people knew these teams, they knew the names of the teams, but they didn't really have much background in terms of the history. And they all have great stories, German football. And you hit upon something really crucial too. Um, the atmosphere at games in the Bundesliga, it doesn't happen by accident. It's because the structure allows for that. And for the most part, fans are also members. And as a result, they're also decision makers. So it's not like what's happening in England, where rich investors can come in, they can make these clubs their playthings, they can immediately get loyalty from fans such as is happening in Newcastle at the moment. That just can, can't happen in Germany. And what you therefore get is you get this really alive atmosphere because the fans feel that they are participants and they will protest things in a way that you don't really see so much in the UK, um, certainly not to the same extent. So it's um, it's something that I think those of us who um, work on the Bundesliga and in my case, German football is, is something that's been part of me for a long time. I think we know that, that it's... It's something that we're very lucky to have. And this is why this 50 plus one rule, uh, which to cut a long story short, means that somebody can't come in and just buy the club. That 50 plus one has to be basically the fans, the, the, the members owning the club. Um, because of this rule, then you do manage to retain a certain ambience and a certain kind of feeling that this is yours. Um, so, yeah, long may that continue. One thing they've certainly got right over in Germany is the, the pricing. Because, um, yep. what is it, 15 euros, sometimes less mm -hmm. um, for games. I was £25 for um, my individual ticket for St. Johnson versus St. Martin, which was less than 3000 Yeah, um, I think it might have been two and a half. Um, and to put that into context, the two Scotland games that I went to with me and my son was £20 for an international yeah. game. You know, So even the SFA, who have been criticised over here, have got that right, whereas our clubs are still charging over the others. I mean, I read an example, Alloa were charging £19 for a League, two, a league 1 game, third yeah. tier. See, as well Why aren't they listening to them? As long as as well as that the travel aspect, the fact that you'll get your travel included if you're in the, the region predominantly, is it? If you're in the same region, yeah. you'll get your travel paid for. So they actually yeah. treat the fans as noble citizens as opposed to in Scotland you, you sometimes feel there's a bit of a, a stigma about football fans going to football. Yeah, yeah. right. Someone told us if you have your ticket, you can mm -hmm. just scan it and you'll get on the like subway for free. They yep. served um, drinks, actual real proper drinks, 
but they don't it's really cool they don't do cash so you have like a like your mm -hmm. season ticket card you load money on so this is really clever correct and yeah. then it's i mean pre-covid sensible because i think cash was kind of on the way out anyway but it's so much quicker but we were stuck and then a really nice man said oh, i'll just sort it for you on my card yeah and, very friendly yeah just, I, I think they put a lot of effort into the fans and i think i saw an interesting graphic on twitter today about what percentage of clubs um by which country their turnover comes from fans buying tickets and mm -hmm. it's 48 percent here and that's the highest yeah and yet i'm not sure that the focus on fan experience and enjoyment is always indicative of the fact that half the club's money comes from there no, I, I would totally agree with that. And you're right. I mean, that is part of it. The, the public transport is uh, an, an aspect of the the match ticket. And that means that everything is joined up. It helps, of course, that in Germany, the, the transport, public transport is truly public transport. It's government run transport, mostly at state regional level, whereas in the UK, and without getting into the politics of it, as we know, three decades or so ago, you know, things like British Rail were, were all sold, so you have all these private companies now, and that doesn't lend itself very well to making agreements to, to have free public transport. Um, so, yeah, all these things come together, and as you mentioned, Aaron, the, um, the cards, which mean no cash inside stadiums, it's just a really special thing to have the experience of going to a game in Germany. I will say to, to people, go to a game, doesn't matter what it is, go to a mid-table game between Mainz and Hoffenheim, go to Bayern against uh, Dortmund, which would be you know the ultimate, difficult to get a ticket for, go to a relegation battle between, uh, I don't know, Greuther Fürth and Arminia Bielefeld. You'll still have the same experience. It'll be the same wherever you go. And the fans are what make that experience. And so I, I think it, it does um, it does speak to that culture, that very different culture. And I think in, in England especially now, that, that culture is, is waning and it's a very different experience. Not to knock it, there's some great football in England. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's fantastic to watch. But I think you have to know going into it that you're watching a very different beast in comparison with, with Germany. Where Scotland is in all of this, I'm not sure because... It struck me when I was in Scotland that um, there was a tendency to view the English model as the, the sort of the future model and just try and be as English as possible. And I've, I've always felt that doesn't really serve Scottish fans because Scotland is not England in football terms. It's not England anyway, but it's certainly not England in, in football terms. And I think the cultural approach would actually be much closer. The natural cultural approach would be much closer to what happens in Germany. So I, I always used to say to people I spoke to at clubs, people I knew who worked at clubs, have a look at, have a look at what they're doing in Germany. You, you, honestly, you would learn so much there that you could apply to Scotland. See, on the back of that, I'm trying to remember as well, I think was it during COVID times as well, you were talking about Aberdeen having a link with a German football club. Yeah. Um, I'm struggling to get the name just now. Jan Regensburg, Jan yes. Regensburg from the second division, but that's because they're twin cities. They have been for a long yeah. time, going back to just after the war. Anything ever come of that, like in terms of the clubs getting together, or nothing did. That there were there, there was some reaching out that went on on the part of Aberdeen, but I think ultimately Regensburg didn't really see any merit in it because they view themselves wholly as a regional club in Germany, and they they didn't really have aspirations beyond that. Funnily enough, they're actually in a promotion position at the moment, so they might have to revise that view if they end up going into the Bundesliga. They might be looking for, um, uh, looking to be a bit more uh, global. But no, I, I think it's something that 
See, fans have been doing this themselves for a good number of years now. Fans started realizing that there was a great weekend to be had by jumping on a flight to Germany. You could do it on a low-cost basis most of the time by getting tickets for first division, second division games, you know, having a, a, a grand old time, making friends, not paying very much, as you mentioned earlier, John, you know, 15 euro to, to stand uh, where all the atmosphere is. And you really can't go wrong. Now, COVID obviously has has put the, the knife through that a little bit. And, um, you know, it's going to take a bit of time to, to get back to the days when we can all just freely go places and, and decide almost on a whim to do something. But, um, yeah, I, I know fans from, in Scotland who have been doing that for, for a decade or more. Yeah, I've been lucky enough as well to go a couple of times. Miguel, yeah. have you been as well? When does it go? Uh, I've, I've been to Berlin, but there wasn't actually a game on it the time I was there. I went around the... Uh, Hertha Berlin Stadium, the Olympic Stadium. Yeah. And see, seeing all the stuff around with it, it's, it's so surreal that that's still there. Like, yeah. Had, like, where they were training the Hitler youths and all of that. Yeah. And, it's, it's, it's a monument, isn't it? I mean, not all, not in, always in a good way, but that uh, Hitler balcony is mm. something that they very specifically will show you if you go on a tour of the Olympiastadion. And, you know, they're doing that for a reason, because uh, there's a, an expression in, in German, nie wieder, never again. And, um, you know, everybody in Germany pretty much will, will, will say that, never again. And this is why we're showing you this. Just This is why it's here, to remind us that this happened. It's quite, quite, sorry, it's quite good, though, that, that, that they do do that, as you're yeah. saying, just to remind them, eh? it's like, it's so it's sobering when you see it all. Like it's yeah. mad. Um, I've got a question about. Obviously, you're a bit a Bundesliga expert yourself, but there's a boy that's local to me that moved across there a couple of years ago, Barry Hepburn. Uh huh. He went yep. to play with Bayern. Um, mm -hmm. He's obviously had a bit of a spark about him, but do you think he's eventually going to stay there, or do you think he'll end up coming home? Or it's hard to say. I mean, he hasn't made the the breakthrough at this point, and. There does come a stage where you have to ask yourself, you know, are you going to make it at a club like Bayern? And it's so difficult. You know, it's you're competing with the best of the best young players. And what happens is eventually, you know, somebody who's got some ability, but maybe not quite good enough for Bayern might get sent on loan somewhere else within Germany just to see how he might do with, say, a second division team in Germany. But it hasn't happened for him so far. So without knowing the specifics and you know exactly how well he's doing, um, last time I checked, it, it appeared to me that, that probably Bayern would be a bridge too far mm -hmm. in itself. But that's not to say that it might not happen from somewhere else within Germany. So, um, you know, he's still got time on his side. I, I don't know about the likes of yourselves, but I'd like to see players like, well, Scottish players going and yeah. actually staying out in these different cultures. Then yeah. they can eventually maybe, as I've said, maybe they'll make it Bayern, but if he drops down a bit, he can then bring it into the Scotland side, whatever he learns, picks up mm -hmm. Germany, or the same way like Liam Henderson, Hickey and Italy. Like they can bring that back into the national side as well, which is good to see. I'm so, I'm so, yeah. Sorry, Liam Morrison. There's Liam Morrison as well. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I'm so glad that you guys have mentioned these names and and this concept because I've always thought that again to go back to what I was saying earlier on, 
as Scots, we look at England and the model has been, yeah, go to the championship in England and, you know, obviously make money there and, you know, hopefully develop there. But I prefer to look at um, similar sized countries to Scotland, not too far away. So I'm thinking Denmark, I'm thinking Sweden, I'm thinking Norway. And they have benefited greatly, those countries, from having players who at a young age have decided that they have to go abroad. That, you know, yeah, they could stay with big clubs or the, or the biggest clubs in Denmark and Sweden, um, or they could go into the academies of big clubs in Germany or in Italy or in Spain. And I think you see from that that you eventually get better national teams. You get more versatile national teams. You get better technical players. And I've been saying that for years and years and years. You know, it would be great if there were this pipeline for Scottish players to go to Germany, to go to Belgium, to go to the Netherlands at a young age, instead of taking the easy route and going to the championship in England. Because, again, nothing against the championship in England. It's good football, but I'm not necessarily convinced that it's the best place for a player's development. you think that partly comes down to as Scots were not very good at learning other languages, traditionally? And it, obviously it happens at school. But it's not something we're traditionally good at, I think. I think that's a British thing in general. There's not that many English players that move abroad. I mean, I can think Sol Campbell had the chance to go to Barcelona in 2001 and whilst he ended up having a good career at Arsenal, um, why did he not take a team like Barcelona? Well, interestingly, with England, that's changing a little bit now. And we're talking about the Bundesliga. So people like Jadon Sancho, who I know has had his difficulties going back to England with Manchester United. but yeah, stayed, you know, in my opinion. Well, he should have, yeah, because he was onto a great thing at Dortmund. You have Jude Bellingham, you know, who's uh, at 18, one of the best 18-year-old footballers I've ever seen at Dortmund now. And so that, that trend has been set that I think English players are looking at that and going, OK, so the choice is I stay at a Premier League club and uh, I play for the youth team or wait in the wings or I get to go and play for a really big club like Dortmund you know you have to be good to to be able to to do that but go to somewhere like Dortmund and actually play and I would like to think that that would strike a chord with Scottish players as well it shouldn't take English players to do it for that to happen but inevitably it does because I think the language is a factor I think it's not just England and Scotland I think it's English-speaking countries where it's too easy to get by without knowing a foreign language whereas you know I mentioned the Scandinavians earlier they all grow up wanting to speak English and they all tend to speak English very well. Uh, it's just part of, of life. And they put that to good use and then they go somewhere like Germany and they end up speaking German very well too. So I think it's all part of this life experience which surely will make you a better footballer. It stands to reason that, yeah, you want to develop your football skills, but you develop your human skills as well. And, um, you know, that is part of the, the pathway to success. So the more we can encourage younger players that there's a huge football world out there, then the better it would be for Scotland in the long run. We've got a player at Aberdeen just now who was playing in Germany. Yep. And how's he doing? He's, um, we're not sure yet. Give him some time. Yeah. Well, the thing about him is that um, he's an interesting one because he actually wanted to stay in Germany. I I know this, that, that he was very keen to give it a real go in Germany, if not in Germany, somewhere in continental Europe. But the style of play at um, Hamburg really got away from his skill set. You know, he's not, David Bates, not the best player with the ball, certainly compared to other um, German players, you know, Um, maybe at Aberdeen. I don't know if you would say that or not, but um, 
essentially it was sort of impressed upon him that it might be better for him to go back somewhere you know like Aberdeen in this case that might suit him a bit better so yeah I'd be interested to know Aaron what you think about how he's doing I'm probably not his biggest um, fan so far <laughs> our defence has just been ropey full stop because Andy yeah. Constantine's out and I love Andy Constantine yeah. and Declan Gallagher has not been maybe quite what we expected he's now injured as well we didn't actually get any defenders. We just bought another 83 midfielders. So we're putting midfielders into defence. Scott Brown's playing at centre-half. Ross McCrory's not played in his actual position all year. Uh, got rid of Shea Wilkin and Ash Taylor. So there's just, the back is a bit of a mess. And mm. I don't entirely blame David Bates, but he, Dundee particularly, I'm not sure he knew what was going on. And Aaron, Aaron, did you miss a memo? We weren't talking about Aberdeen tonight. Like, once, we're do- once we're doing well again, we, have we can to talk do about Aberdeen as much as we want. We did now, have the whole, the we podcast had a whole was going days. so well. It was so enjoyable. And then, oh. We had a whole eight days of joy. And now Saturday... Let's bring out a DVD. Those eight days we were good under. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> interesting though, because uh, obviously you, with America and stuff like that, Stephen mm. Glass, I, I don't yeah. know if this is all right to ask, but were you surprised they got the job? Not really. I, I know Stephen quite well. Um, he and I had quite a lot of chats on the phone, in fact, during the early part of the pandemic, because um, you know he was in a, an interesting situation in Atlanta, and he's a great guy. I mean, he's somebody who uh, I, I always enjoy talking about football with. I think his ideas are very progressive. So it, it didn't completely shock me. I, I thought, in fact, he might be on the radar of Dundee United before Aberdeen when that job came up. I thought he's the sort of person they might look at and you know the background with him is that he'd been the the manager of the second team in Atlanta for people who don't know Atlanta United are a pretty big deal in the USA you know huge crowds newish team um, you know managing to win the title early on in their existence and just a lot of buzz about them so then of course he's thrust into the job as as caretaker there as as the, the the manager of Atlanta and it's always unfair to judge somebody when they're the caretaker they're coming in and it, and it's it's somebody else's ideas and you know not a, a heck of a lot of time to to do very much there but um I always had in my mind that he probably would be on the the radar of of Dave Cormack because uh, because of his Atlanta connections as well and you know I don't think they were close friends or anything like that. I'm not sure if that's how it's reported in Scotland, but uh, obviously there was some sort of connection. And, you know, Stephen's a, a credible football figure. And I was happy to see him given his chance because I've, I've had the feeling in Scotland for a long time that while there are many really good experienced managers, the default position is to go for an experienced manager. And somewhere along the line, you've got to have new blood and new ideas coming through. I think from my point of view, I've said this, I've probably said it more than others, that a bit more critical. I've always felt this season for Aberdeen was going to be transitional. like yeah. a, Because McInnes, whether folk liked him or not, we had our best period of success since likes of Smith. Okay, we never won the trophies, we would, would have liked to, but that's always the case. And there is, I still I still see signs that Glass is doing a good job. I know that's, a lot of fans will be like shouting at me going, what are you talking about? But the, the play is more positive. Callback, I think even just the way that he, some people say he carries himself slightly differently, but I think there is something there. I just think there's maybe just slight tweaks that are required and then we can get going. 
Yeah, not conceding um, so many easy chances, which gives um, opposition a high conversion rate against us. That's the alarming thing. I mean, Motherwell have played this twice, had four shots and targets, scored four goals from it. So that tells, if um, we're going to use Dave Cormack's terms, the data. What What is the data telling us? That we're not um, creating enough clear-cut chances and we're conceding enough for us to lose goals all the time. It's not a good mix. We are creating a lot of chances, we're just not converting them. And that's... Football's that simple. If you don't keep clean sheets and you don't score goals, well, you know what's happening. Yeah, I, I take your point though about this transitional period. You know, I think you know Derek was there for a long time, Derek McInnes, and you know Aberdeen's best manager for a long time. You'd have to say that. But at a certain stage, when a, when a manager leaves and he had his own ideas, and we know pretty much we could sum up that under Derek McInnes, Aberdeen were mostly hard to beat. They were quite good at managing games. They were quite good at seeing things through from that point of view. Maybe not an awful lot of razzle and dazzle in terms of the football latterly. Um, You know, that's probably the feeling of most fans. But if, if you're going to change things, then you have to allow for that, you know, and you have to say, okay, things might get worse for a while before they get better. Yeah, definitely. Um, just to spin it back around, Scotland's coming up. Yeah. Uh, MLS. So I was watching some of the MLS last night. Obviously, there's some great things in terms of Scottish players doing well just now. We've got Candice are going to face Vancouver. You've got Johnny Russell and Ryan Gold coming against each other. Colorado Rapids with Danny Wilson as well. Who do you think will win the playoffs in MLS this season? Well, you know what? I'm ashamed to say this, but, uh, but I'm going to say it anyway. Because even though I live in the USA, I, I actually don't watch a lot of MLS. Uh, I, okay. I don't I don't get to watch a lot of it just because of my other commitments, because I'm primarily watching the Bundesliga and trying to watch just about every game and, and write a column on the back of it. And, and I'm now broadcasting La Liga as well, which has been great fun, incidentally. I think La Liga is unfairly maligned by a lot of people because Messi has left and Barcelona are not as good as they used to be. And maybe the overall quality is not as good, but it's still a, <laughs> still a really good league with some fantastic teams and, and great stories. But, um, but I haven't watched enough of, of MLS to form a proper judgment. Um, what I would say is the little I've seen of Johnny Russell... Um, I would say that he can count himself a bit unlucky not to be in the the Scotland squad, just just based on, you know, based as much as anything else on his uh, his goal scoring numbers. Yeah, I read something earlier. It was Ryan Gog was talking about in the back of the game last night. I don't know whether Johnny Russell at the moment's picked up an injury because he was saying yeah. if I get to play against Johnny Russell, but it's not just been this squad. It was the squads before whereby you feel what twelve goals in twelve games, Johnny Russell. Yeah, he's top top joint top scorer in MLS, eight assists. So he's, an American point of view, he's MVP almost in in those terms. And then Ryan Gold, obviously, going to Vancouver has been terrific. Yeah, and, 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 maybe, and maybe it's actually something Scottish players should look at as well, MLS, because the standard, you know, it's not amazing, but it's good. You know, it's it's a good competitive standard. And, you know, there are a lot of very credible players from around the world who ply their trade in, in MLS. So, you know, that is something perhaps for the future as well. Lewis Morgan's another one that's been out there and he's yeah. playing alongside Higuain. You know, that's yeah, uh, maybe yeah. a Higuain that's um, getting on a bit, but Higuain, we still do a job for Aberdeen if we think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. <laughs> Beside Ramirez. Beside Ramirez. Yes, yep, the American, yeah. Yeah. We like him. Right. He's nice. He seems so happy all the time. But he had his wife and his kids at the game, the Dundee United game, it must have been, I think, um, the first game of the season. And they had like hats and scarves on. And I thought, 
oh dear, what are they going to do in December? <laughs> like when your granny says, don't put your coat on in the house, you'll get the benefit when you go outside. I don't know what they're wearing. They're probably just not there anymore. Too cold. It'll be like the Michelin, Michelin uh, man. used to more tropical climates. Although I do like, he's not, not seen him with a long sleeve top on yet. I've not seen him in gloves. Did don't mind wearing a long sleeve top. I do not like them wearing gloves. He was in Houston though. Houston's not got the best climate from what I understand. Well, it, it's 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 permanently hot in in Houston. Oh, is it? So, so yeah, it sort of depends where you come from in America. Because um, I, I will say, when I went back to to work in Scotland after many years, many winters here in Boston, I used to uh, I think um, uh, surprise everybody in the crew because I almost never wore gloves and I never felt I needed a big coat because when everybody would complain that it was zero degrees Celsius, oh, it's freezing, I would say you haven't spent the winter in Boston. So until you spend the winter in Boston, you you don't know what what cold actually is, because because here it gets properly cold for about four months. Um, keep on running, keep running. Yeah, it's it, um, the, the funny thing is that you know the, the sun will be shining brightly, but it'll be minus twelve, you know, and the wind chill coming off the Atlantic Ocean. So uh, yeah, it makes a cold night at Fur Hill or uh, or in Paisley seem like a, a mere bagatelle. <laughs> Do you ever get to games as a non-working trip? You know what, Aaron? Um, I, I have not been. You, you have a huge advantage over me at the moment. I have not been to a game in a stadium since February of 2020, since right before the pandemic. I've not I've just not been able to to be at one because of my geography and the the people I work for, my clients. They have decided not to to send me anywhere, so I do all my work remotely. Um, that's that's how it's been, and I think that's how it's going to continue. Um, before the pandemic, absolutely, I, I used to do that regularly in Germany. I would always, if I had a game on a Friday and maybe on a Saturday, commentary-wise, I would always go somewhere else for a game as a fan on the Sunday or even on the Monday. I was the only person who liked Monday night games because they allowed me to do that. Most people hate Monday night games, which are there for TV purposes. And the same in Scotland, but when I worked for BT sport um i would pop up at some some of the strangest places or, or people might think the strangest places if i had a game uh, on a, a saturday and then a free day the next day and there was a game going on somewhere then i'd go or similarly if we had a say a celtic or rangers game on a sunday i'd try and go up a, a bit early if say if we were in glasgow on the sunday and hamilton ackies were at home on the saturday i would nip out to hamilton and watch the game there and uh, when rangers were down the divisions or trying to come back up the the division um, I remember going to you know numerous smaller venues just to have a look at some of these teams who you know obviously we didn't know very much about. So you know the chance to go and watch Montrose or to go and watch Brechin or East Fife, and um, I've got great memories of doing that. And those clubs were terrific in terms of opening their doors to people like me who wanted to get that kind of inside view, talking to the players, talking to the manager, all to try to to get some great stories that we could use on the air. So, yeah, I, I, I miss that. I really do. Of all the things that I miss, you know, and, and continue to miss during this pandemic, that that would be top of the list, just the ability to, to roll up at a football match. And as I say, I don't know when it's um, it's going to come back for me. When you do go to a game, um, do you have a pie? Football? If I'm in Scotland, I, I generally do have a pie, yes. I, I generally, and the great thing is when you, you commentate in Scotland, you, you, you do get generally get a pie presented to you at half time. In fact, at Ross County, the chairman himself would always make his way up the steps to the TV gantry and present 
me with a plate of pies for me and the camera team and the co-commentator. So Roy McGregor was was uh, was the, the pie presenter in chief at Ross County, and I'm sure still is for the people who work there. And uh, yeah, I, I I I do miss the the pie culture. What is your favourite pie? Um, I would say it depends on my mood actually. Um, I think at Ross County, they have maybe the best pies. They had a guy called Derek Miller, who is on Twitter as, I think, just the pie man. And um, he had an amazing selection of different pies. But I, I like just a good steak one, you know. I like I like one that just has some really good, tasty steak. But, you know, I'm open to other things too. I've had good venison pie. I've had, uh, you know, just a normal scotch pie, macaroni pie now and again. You know, that, that goes down yeah. quite well. Yeah, I like the, yeah. I like the macaroni pies. Yeah. Uh, what else? What have we missed? I mean, I'm sure that there are other pies that I've had that... We've uh, seen quite a steak few. Steak and Steak and cheese and Johnson's excellent. Someone yeah. was having a Donner pie. Where was that? Uh, Body Rig, I think. Body Rig Rose, I think, are doing the Donner Pie. There's a few of us that are doing it. You've got the Mary Hill Melter in the west of Scotland. There's all sorts of pies. Uh, I'm going to slow it down a wee bit here and do a sponsored ad. So if you want to take pride in the way you look, and maybe if you're a footballer's wife and you've got a wish for something else, get your lawnmower 4.0, tidy yourself up, and you'll be ready for love, love. So SFF Podcast... 20% 20% off and free shipping on all the products. So get involved, uk.manscaped.com and your time will come to be looking good down there. Now, the reason why I've done that, the way I've done it, I don't know if, Derek, you might have figured this out from certain things that Scott and me have been saying throughout the podcast. Because we know you're a fan of a certain singer. Did you recognise what was getting done there, at least in that ad? It is a true ad, by the way, for Manscaped. So if anyone does want products, go on the site, get your use the code, get the discounts. Did you notice? I I, I didn't, no, I didn't. But I'm, maybe I wasn't paying attention enough. Right, okay, that's fine. So one of the guys has asked a question about a certain signal that you like uh-huh. and about football and about German City. So we hear you are a big Amy McDonald fan. Oh, yes, of course, yeah. Right? So, which footballer, past or present, would you take to a game? And which German city, sorry, not to a game, to an Amy McDonald concert, and which ah. city would it be? So, so which which footballer, past or present, would I take to an Amy McDonald concert, and, and in which city? In Germany. Um, in Germany. In, 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 in she's Germany. Big she's, she's big everywhere, but Germany, I know she's particularly big. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think who the... Well, the city I can give you first of all, it would be Cologne because that is my spiritual German home, and the crowds there are brilliant. In fact, I've uh, I've I've seen Amy perform in Cologne before at the the Lenxess Arena. I usually stay in the hotel right behind it, so so that would be the city. Um, the footballer who I would take, you know, the footballer who I would take, and this is this is dating me a little bit, but I I would take Pierre Litbarski. Remember Pierre Litbarski, player yeah, from yeah, yeah. from West Germany, and Kern, Cologne, from the, the 1980s, because I think he would really appreciate, uh, being a, a Kern guy, he would appreciate that, and he's very, you know, 
interesting kind of guy. He's got all sorts of different passions and hobbies, and uh, I think he would be a big Amy fan. Most people in Germany are Amy fans. I have German radio on most of the day, a sort of musical background, and I would say Amy's music gets played at least once every two hours. Yeah. So would you? So if you're taking Pierre Lebowski to the gig, would you just have Craig Burley driving you? <laughs> Well, if Craig Burley were driving us, then he'd be moaning every second of every minute on his way to the gig. So I don't know that that would be that would be looked upon favourably by Pierre. <laughs> so for anyone that's an Amy McDonald fan, if you listen out through the podcast, you will get about at least twelve different song titles in the podcast. And even uh, in so, that so- part. So you were, you were, you were, ah, I wasn't, you know what? I was not paying attention to that. I was not aware of that. So, so this is the life must have been in there somewhere. And I don't know what else you you threw in there. I started the podcast, started the podcast by saying, this is the life we are Ah, getting on. I never, never and then then through that uh, link there, I went, I'm going to slow it down. Ah, yes. Um, If you want to take pride in the way you look. Yeah. Then, and you've got a wish for something else. Yeah. Then you can dream uh, on. If you want to look you... good for your yeah, if you want to look good for your footballer's wife. Yeah. You get a bit of love, love. Your time will come. Uh, so we've got a few, yeah. a few in there just in that, but we had others throughout. So people maybe hear it throughout. So there we go. I, I think I think she's an amazing talent, and and most of all, she's a lovely person. You know, I think that comes across whenever you hear Amy McDonald being interviewed. Um, she she gives you who she is. You know there there are no airs and graces, yeah. and I think every every Scot should um, should listen to Amy both as a singer and as a person and think uh, yeah I'm I'm really chuffed that uh, that she's one of ours. Yeah, yes. my second what? favorite podcast after this one is um, the Old Farm Facts podcast. Um, yeah. the one with you where you and Amy were on with um, Adam, who was one of our guests as well. Yeah, um, that was a great podcast to listen to. That one, I must say. Oh, thank you. Well, no, it, it was an honour to be asked to be on with Amy, and uh, we, we had a good laugh together. It was great. And Adam's a superb host, as you know. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Scott and me were both lucky enough to see Amy McDonald. Was it last month at King Tut's, which is like that's an absolute dream. It's such a small yeah. venue to see someone so big. September, yeah. mate. It was September. Was, was it that long ago? Oh, transmit weekend of transmit. Transmit. I think it was our first gig back. Yeah. In Since Scotland, COVID. I think she's played a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. So it was mm-hmm. amazing. We, we didn't meet. I, I, I was uh, in a better condition than you were. <laughs> Come I, on. Stop storytelling. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I, I haven't had as much of the human spirit. Then another one. <laughs> Boom. There we go. Another Amy song. <laughs> um, right, yeah, we should probably run it back to a bit of sensibility, maybe. Or should we get back to the food chat? Germany, fan mm. experience. Food yes. and beer. So what is your favourite beer to drink in Germany? Well, again, being of the the Kirsch persuasion, as we say, it would have to be basically any kind of of Kirsch. Now, Kirsch is the the beer that is germane to Cologne. And I I encourage people to try it. It's not the most fashionable beer, but I would describe it as it's probably as close as you'd get to a, a pale ale kind of beer. Um, you have this rivalry between Cologne and Dusseldorf, and in Dusseldorf yeah, yeah. they have a, a beer called Alt, which is a very—it's a darker beer, a grainier beer. It's not to my taste so much, but I know some people who will only drink Alt, but will never drink Kirsch. What I would say is never order Alt in Cologne. 
um, because you will get a lot of funny looks and probably probably <laughs> not a good idea to order Kirsch in Dusseldorf either because that will, will not go down too well. But uh, no, Kirsch. But... Um, and gaffer kirsch would probably be my favorite kind of kirsch. Uh, there are loads of different varieties. There are many different types. But if you're ever in Cologne, that's kind of what you, you have to drink is, is kirsch. And um, it, it goes down nicely. They serve them in, in these little miniature glasses. So what happens is the if you're in a, a pub, the, the waiter comes around with these this big sort of tray of these, these, these small glasses. And you all get one. And then, of course, they get consumed quite quickly. And then another serving comes around, and on the beer mat, he simply will will add up the number, you know, one, two, three for that that you've had, and at the end, you you pay for the number of miniature push um, servings that you've had. So it's a bit of a cultural thing as well. So yeah, I'd have to give the shout out to to Kirsch as the as the beer of choice for me. I've been in both cities actually. Back in the day when Scotland played in Dortmund. The Christian Daly game, that's how everyone remembers it. Yes, I was at that one too. Yeah. We did a tour, so we started off in Dusseldorf. Yeah. Then went to Col- Dortmund and then to Cologne. I, I don't know if I knowingly had the beers, but I do remember the people yeah. going around with the glasses and stuff like that and getting drinks. So that must have been what I was probably drinking. Yeah. I, I also been... experienced Jägermeister for the first time. Ooh. So it was in the it was in the old I might not pronounce this right, the old start of Dusseldorf. Yeah, Yeah. So we were there, and everyone was at this like kind of booth, like in, a, in the wall, mm-hmm. and they were getting this drink, and we're all going, well, "What's going on there?" Um, being Scottish, you're like, "Oh, that looks interesting." And we seen these people with like what looked like shot glasses, and it was a digestive because it was so cold, and yeah. it was also to heat them up a wee bit as well. So that was my first experience at Jägermeister. Yeah, it's um, it, it an acquired taste for some people. Not everybody would like it. I remember when I was very young, first time I spent a lot of time in Germany, and uh, of course you could you could. Um, drink when you were or when i was 16 at that point i tried this thing called kummerling which is uh similar to jägermeister but maybe even more potent and i remember thinking oh i don't think you could have too many of them and I'd still be standing straight after after the experience john i think you had a question you wanted to ask yeah um so during lockdown and a lot of people were bored um you know, some random videos came out. So you did one um, celebrating the anniversary of Gothamer. You played the European song in the background. Yeah. Um, but I've got to ask, why did you wear the shirt of one of Aberdeen's most um, <laughs> traumatic occasions, the one that they wore at Ibrox in 91, to celebrate the greatest achievement in the club's history? Well, I, I can give an honest answer to that, John. It's the, it was the only Aberdeen shirt that I actually had in <laughs> my wardrobe to put on. <laughs> So that's the honest truth. Um, I'm not a great collector of things. I, I should be a better collector, but I'm not somebody that has a lot of things from the past. And so I, I frantically had a look, and that was the one that I had. And it was actually a gift that had been given to me by uh, by Aberdeen when I left the BBC the first time, signed by the entire first-team squad. So it's, you know, obviously Willie Miller, Alec McLeish, but also people like Hans Heelhaus and Theo Snelders and people like that. Um, so that's the reason. If I'd had a shirt from 83, I would have put that on. If I'd had a, a modern shirt, I might have put that on. But that was the only one that I had in my in my wardrobe to, to wear for that special occasion. But it, by the way, it was great to, to, to make that programme that we did. Um, obviously, the club came up with the idea that everybody was, you know, boards and it was locked down. People were at home. So we said, why not make a, an anniversary programme for the... Um, 
for the, uh, the the success in Gothenburg in '83. Uh, what was it? It would have been what thirty-seven years at that point. At that point yeah. Thirty-seven years. So we got uh, you know four of the crew, four of the players, and there's nothing like getting those stories, you know. And uh, hopefully they'll stand the test of time and in 20 years people will be able to listen to these guys talking you know and and remembering you know what was an incredible day for not just Aberdeen but for Scottish football as a whole um, I've got a question that any of could answer it to be honest but I've seen videos of Gothenburg and I'm sure the crowd were actually saying you'll never walk alone in the background and I didn't think it was anything that was a tribute to Aberdeen well, all I would say is that I remember that song being the background of quite a lot of games in those days. You know, I, obviously people think about it first and foremost as a Liverpool song. You know, I think people associate it with Liverpool. But I remember hearing that. Um, and I remember even hearing, you know, for example, it's a grand old team to play for that I think most people associate with Celtic. Uh, but I remember Aberdeen fans singing that back in the 1980s as well. But, you know, putting their own words to it. So I think there was maybe a bit more adaptability and a bit more borrowing of other um, songs. At least that, that's my, my recollection of it. Have you got a favourite football song? Actually, on the back of that. Wait, sorry, Scott. Have you got a favourite football, football song? Whether it be a song sign on the terraces or a song sign for the purpose of football. Um, favourite football song. I mean, there, there are there are so many of them. Um, I think the one as a as a Scott, funnily enough, is th- the one that I think jumps out for me would be. Do you remember B. A. Robertson did one for um, Scotland? I think it would have been the nineteen eighty two World Cup. Yeah. Don't know if anybody remembers that one. Yeah, and I I think that was the best of all of the the Scotland songs, and because it was kind of a, a self parody. You know, it was it was this guy who's you know, and and eventually he's he's in bed and he's. He's, he's he's dreaming it, you know, and and he's he's actually kicking his wife when he's he's you know not that you want to be kicking your wife, not encouraging that for one second at just all. Under but, the covers, just under the yeah, covers. Yeah, he's he's in, he's imagining he's taking a, a penalty. He's imagining he's John Robertson because I think the words go, yeah. and John Robertson, who normally takes them, is handing the ball to me, you know, and so it's um. Yeah, I, I think that that would be my favourite one uh, of that particular time. But I can think of 10, 11, 12 others, you know, and from different cultures, because that's a great thing, being lucky enough to travel the world covering football. You pick up songs from other countries and other cultures that stay with you, in my case especially from Germany. But for this audience, I think the B.A. Robertson one would be my favourite. The, the right answer to that question was actually Whatever It Takes by Scott McGill. But... Ah, I should have said. I should have been. A, well, but, yeah, yeah. One A is whatever it takes by Scott McGill. Sorry, Scott. <laughs> I, f- I feel like Chesney Hawks because like this is the only song I ever get spoken about I've ever done, and it's the only <laughs> one I'll ever be known for. So, so that's my Chesney Hawks moment. But actually, I thanked you before we came on, but I'll yeah. date you here as well, Derek. Derek, you were good enough to send me through a couple of words to actually put into it. So there's a spoken bit in the song, and if you listen close, you'll hear Derek. I I think it's Scotland together. That's what you said. I think, I think that's what you had me say. Yeah, yeah. That's um, right. It just it comes across brilliant. Yeah. But actually, one of my friends had uh, done a podcast with Ian Crocker as well. Oh yeah, they'd, yeah. They'd emailed him, but he never got back until like the week after the song was done. Ah, uh, yeah. And he was yeah. like, "Oh no, brilliant! I'll do it. I'll do it." And I was like, "Ah, sh-. like I could have had the two years <laughs> on it, and it would have been yeah." Glory though as well. What's that, mate? 
You had Rory as well, did you? Know? Aye, aye. Yeah. And I'd like, I don't know if Gordon you know. Shiak. <laughs> aye, a, a, a good couple of boys at the podcast as well. And um, like, you'll not know who George Bowie is, but he was on it. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> aye, there's a good few folk, mate. There's a good, and it, it raised four hundred pounds off his stream. Ah, so brilliant. No, brilliant. Thanks for that, Will. No, thank you, Scott. We have another uh, audience question from, funny enough, Ian Crocker, who ah. asks, who asks, <laughs> um, do you miss the coffee chats? <laughs> is that from the real Ian Crocker, is it? From the real Ian Crocker, he says, ah. do you miss the coffee chats and tell him I said hi, how are you doing? Ah, well, say hi in return. Hopefully he's listening. Yes, I very much miss our, our chats over tea and coffee. Um, Crocs and I are, are, are good pals, and I think it's one thing, it's a bit like the goalkeepers' union, you know. Um, the commentators' union is, is very strong. We do the same job. We go through the same things. We have the same challenges. We compare notes all the time. And it's a funny kind of thing. You know, Crocs and I always worked for different channels. Maybe you might say the rival channels, but we felt like anything but rivals. In fact, sometimes your rival as a commentator can actually be somebody at your own channel who maybe is getting better gigs than, than, than you're getting. But, but Crocs and I were always on, on different sides. He was with Sky, still is. I was with ESPN and then BT Sport and uh, and now with a, a number of other entities too. But um, no, he's a great guy. He's got a great dry sense of humour. Loves Scottish football as well. Not from Scotland originally, but an adopted Scot. I think most people would agree. And um, yeah, I definitely miss those catch-ups. We used to try to, we used to have to be quite creative doing it because we were rarely in the same place at the same time. Because of course, if Sky had a game, then BT didn't and vice versa. So it usually had to be, you know, sometimes at the, the train station or at the airport, you know, I'd send a text you know, saying, oh, I'm, I'm coming in off this train. Oh, I'm leaving on this train. Want to meet, meet up? Yes, yeah, let's do it, you know. And uh, um, we'd sort of um, always have a, have a great laugh and enjoy uh, putting the whole world right. Ian's <laughs> just, um, bro, I was, I was delighted for him when, it seemed to be several, almost a year ago today, actually. Um, yeah. Because... You know, when Ian Crocker first got into Scottish football, it was then every year we, we wouldn't qualify. And the previous term before he joined was the last one we qualified for. So we used to joke that he's a jinx. So when we qualified that night, I was he was one of the first people I was thinking about as well after yeah. um, the initial celebrations. He's a good guy. But it's a shame that he, he was commentating for, obviously, Sky for the, um, the tournament. But his main contribution for um, these years was doing the voiceover for this podcast. <laughs> No, well, he, he honestly, he's a great broadcaster, a great yeah, commentator, yeah. and um, and I th- and I think you know I I used to always say when um, during the years when I was there, we never got near the Celtic Rangers game. Now, as an Aberdonian, the Celtic Rangers game maybe didn't mean as much to me personally as it did to a lot of other people, but um, we we never got near it as broadcasters. And I used to always say, you know, even for me, if I ever did get near it, and we did once um, in the League Cup. Uh, semi-final. What would that? That would be what sixteen, seventeen. My last, 16. <laughs> yeah, my last, my last season there. Um, I, I used to say it, it's going to seem and sound wrong that I'm on this game because this is Crox's fixture. You know, he's he's been the the voice of this fixture for for two decades, and you can't really argue with that. It is funny how people become the voice of yeah. you know, things you've listened to and things you've seen, and you recognise it so much. My um ex-boyfriend's uncle was a commentator Mike Ingham oh really I, I I know Mike I've got a great story with Mike, Mike because um, 
the first game I ever did, well, sorry, the second game I ever did on the air was uh, England against Scotland at Wembley in 1986. And my commentary team was Mike Ingham and Dennis Law. And uh, sorry, Mike Ingham and John Gregg, not Dennis Law. Later, it was Dennis Law in certain games. And so Mike and I shared commentary, 22 and a half minutes each we used to do in those days. We'd divide the half up and uh, Mike did the first 22 and a half minutes and I did the second. And he was uh, a perfect gent. And um, I've been in his company since then as well. And I, I think he's now retired in Cornwall, if I'm right. I think that's the last time I I, I heard. Uh, he he's a really impressive um, record collection of things. And I think he's enjoying Retirement, his last game, the World Cup final, I remember watching it and just, you know, from being younger, you're in the car, you hear the radio. Yeah. And when you were actually, when I was quite young, games weren't on TV the way they are now. You, no. know, you didn't really see um, Champions League Tuesday, Wednesday night. I still think that is a massive loss to ITV. I thought it was brilliant. You know, the Champions, when you were younger, the Champions League anthem coming on and it being on the telly was huge. Mm. And you went to watch your own games. But there wasn't the kind of availability of other games that there was. So you were kind of watching highlights or it was the radio. And so you are just so used to hearing certain names. And it is kind of strange when people that you've grown up listening to kind of leave the game. Yeah, no, and I think that's true. And and I think um, those of us who commentate, we are all synonymous with with something or some event. And, you know, I, I had the same when I went back to Scotland in 2009. I knew that I had something to prove to a lot of people because I was this kind of, you know, who's this Derek Ray? He's been away. Where's he been for 20, 20 years? A lot of people didn't know me at all. And, you know, while people in the USA knew me and other parts of the world through the Champions League, the Scottish audience, for the most part, unless you were of a certain age and you might have remembered me from the first time, um, they had no recollection. So I think we're always doing that. We're always trying to, to, to get ourselves... Um, you know, be liked by the audience. That's what it comes down to. And sometimes you just can't compete with somebody who has been in the right place broadcasting a certain thing for a length of time. And uh, that's just life. It's it's human nature, isn't it? Jeff Sterling leaving Sky, I think, is going to be actually quite yeah. an emotional one. Yeah. Well, for, again, I, for... I saw that he denounced it and I watched his little video. Yeah. And it was actually quite sad even just on the day. I think, you know, he has been there the whole of my lifetime. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, all the funny bits and all the the Chris Kamara thing was absolutely brilliant. And it's just strange to think that that'll be someone else. And I'm sure it'll be someone else very good, but it is just feels like the end of an era a bit. And I don't know, he's obviously off to do something, but he's not said what. Might be like you, he's got a big secret job. <laughs> but he's anything well, somewhere and it's not Sky related and then he's not saying anything else. Yeah, I think people in broadcasting, and I certainly felt this in 2017, I think that we're always a little bit antsy, and I think we're always looking for something new and exciting to do. And that doesn't mean that we're fed up or were fed up with the old thing that we're doing. But if you've been doing a show, as Jeff has, for three decades, um, you could sort of understand why you might say, you know what, it's time to time to move on and and the, the research that goes into that show i can tell you is um oof, it, it would do your head in thinking about you know what you have to do day to day to be ready for what's going to be thrown at you on a saturday with live things happening and you know to be ready with the information and the statistics and sometimes the one-liners and the quips and um yeah i'm sure he'll be he'll be happy to to sort of have the the brain cleaned out a little bit for, for the first few weeks anyway. Then I'm sure he'll be ready to throw himself back into something. See, in terms of commentary, were you lucky enough to commentate on the 28th of June of this year at the Euros? 
mm. the best tournament day ever, potentially. In my lifetime, I can't remember a better day. Yeah, that was a day when, well, those two games um, on the 28th of June, I had one of them, which was Spain against uh, Croatia. Is that the day we're talking about? Yeah, and then yeah, on the yeah. back of that was Switzerland, France. Um, yeah, that will go down for me as certainly a, a, a day I'll never forget. It's funny, you mentioned 28th of June and it immediately popped into my head. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I don't think we'll soon get two games of that stature back to back. Um, again, you know, I, I, that was just something almost out of this world. And, you know, the, the, the first game was good enough. The second game might have been even better, you know, and that, that is saying everything, isn't it? Because um, after the first one, after the Spain game, you thought it, it can't get much better than this. I'm going to flick it um, by just when John was talking about this year's Euros. My, the first Euros I, I remember is actually something I'm writing about. Um, yeah. was year 92. Um what do you think of it? I mean, that was only an eight-team tournament in Scotland where effectively yeah. the fifth-best team in Europe. And you think of the landscape of Europe now, um, then to now. It's, um, was that the tournament that kind of really got the Euros kicking off um, in your view when you think back? I think it depends on your age, John, to be honest. It depends on you know what the, the sort of the first experience of the Euros would have been. I think there were actually a couple of good tournaments before that. I thought um, 82 was brilliant, but it was kind of lost to UK viewers because, frankly, the TV channels didn't do a very good job covering it. There weren't 84. that many. Do you mean because uh, 80, 84? Yeah, I'm having a terrible you know, time with my, my dates here. 80, 84, yes. The 80, Euro 84 um, after the 82 World Cup. And, and in 84, it wasn't, um, it wasn't covered particularly well. 88 was covered better. And that was also a really good tournament, I thought, you know, with the Netherlands winning in the final. And, and Van Basten's outrageous goal. Um, so 92 for me sort of continued in that, in that same fashion. Um, 1980 wasn't as memorable. 76 was good in terms of the final, but it hadn't really caught on as a tournament properly in 1976. So for me, I think I would say 84, uh, 88, and then 92 was, was continuing. But, you know, to, to go along with your point, you know, Scotland to be in that company, to be in very elite company when it was only eight countries and my memories of that Euro would be that Scotland were quite unlucky in, in the games, that they didn't play badly remember especially against Germany didn't play badly at all but, but ended up losing the game and uh, it could have gone in a different direction but the margins were so fine We have a question from Dave Smith who was asking, I think he's interested in getting into broadcasting, mm, yeah. what advice would you give him if he wants to get into broadcasting how do you approach it? Well, the first piece of advice would be you have to really want it badly, and that means you have to go the extra mile, and you have to start broadcasting. Now, how do you start broadcasting? Well, you pick up your phone, and you go onto the recording button on your phone, and you simply record, and you start trying to fine-tune your broadcasting performances. That's how you do it. Talk to my games and then got the chance at Hospital Radio as an amateur and then BBC as a professional. So that's the abbreviated version. But I will say to people, if you really want it badly enough, you've got to go and do it. Somebody is not going to come to you and say, oh, are you interested in being a broadcaster? Oh, we'll invest the time and, and effort in, in making you a broadcaster. No, that doesn't happen. So you have to really go and do it. So you have to sort of figure out how you're going to do it, come up with a strategy for that. Listen to broadcasters who you really like and respect. 
and try and work out in your mind what is it that they're doing that makes them special broadcasters. Don't copy them, but be aware of what it is they're doing. It's a bit like, um, you know, watching a professional golfer and admiring a professional golf swing. You can't copy it because that golf swing belongs to them. But you can take certain things, whether it's their rhythm, whether it's their timing, whether it's just the way they, they make it look easy. Um, so those things. And then the other thing I would say is you have to really look after your voice. You have to almost think like a singer. This is why, you know, when I did that uh, podcast with Amy McDonald, this is going through my mind. Singers and broadcasters are very similar in that we're spending a lot of time thinking about our voice, protecting our voice, using it effectively on air, knowing that we can't just sort of go on and talk casually. We have to talk professionally. And that sometimes means not having good um, social lives. I I hate to say it, but it means sacrificing nights out with your friends or uh, loud environments. I avoid loud environments because I know that it's not good for my voice. I won't be able to broadcast properly the next day. So things like that. But the main thing is record, 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 get your voice on tape and, you know, eventually take your best work and try to to show it to to somebody in the broadcasting business and take it from there. So in the back of that, Miguel, you have to stop going to noisy events. Stop, (laughs) stop drinking. (laughs) <laughs> Look after your voice, and Derek Ray has just told you you will be a megastar in the city. There you go. That's the secret. I've just, I've just invested in this. It's a, a Vix. It's like a nasal thing, but it's a full mask. Yeah. You put on your face. I've got one as well. I've got one just behind me as well. I've just, I just found it the other day. I've yep. just bought it. So hopefully that does the trick because you can well, hear it, the voice now. It's kind yeah. of nasal. Yeah, yeah, they're they're good things. They're sort of uh, what would you call them? Uh, humidifiers, aren't they? They're kind of mm-hmm. things for uh, yeah, making everything more humid. Because uh, yeah, you need that. And I guess the other thing is, um, see, water here. Drink, drink lots oh, of water. Plenty. That's it. Can't beat that. I've just had honey and lemon in there as well. Oh, yeah, that's good too. <laughs> Do you get nervous before the game, Jack? Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say I get nervous, but I'll tell you what happens: the adrenaline pumps in the seconds before the broadcast starts. And it's funny. Once the broadcast has started, I relax a little bit. But it's those sort of two or three minutes when you know you got the voice in your ear saying, "Okay, two minutes. All right, one minute. Okay, thirty seconds, and then ten, nine, eight. It's during that period you kind of. You know, the adrenaline is definitely pumping. And I think, to be honest, I would be worried if it weren't pumping. That's maybe the day that you give up when you don't have that kind of anticipation. I bet it's the same for a footballer. I bet a footballer just before kickoff is going through that same procedure. And then probably once you're underway and you're doing what you know you can do, then it's a bit different. And that's that's how it is for me. But um, so nervous, maybe not so much, but definitely, um, definitely full of adrenaline and focus. Well, like his podcasters, like John, Aaron, and me, we avoid yeah. sitting. We avoid sitting so we can speak. At work, before I joined um, my current job, I've been there nearly four years. Yeah. When I first joined, they were talking about night sound and stuff they like doing. And it's a really social team. I was like, oh, this is great. And they were talking about going to karaoke. And they said, oh, we go quite a lot. So we went a few months after I joined. And we've not been in three and a half years. Erin, Erin, Erin. I hate to tell you, they all still go. It's just your bat bad at sitting. You don't be invited back. <laughs> Do you know if she's because of bad at singing, yeah. John? She's told well, us. Well, exactly. She's Maybe we don't before. go because they no. were like, she's professional. It's embarrassing. Oh, yeah. oh, to me, feel stupid. You forget, I've got a... This isn't just a hat rack. When Iona Fife was on, 
you told yeah. us that you are shocking at sudden. Well, I actually think I'm fine, but I've been told by every single person I know that I'm not. So perhaps they're right. I don't know. I sound fine. <laughs> I think I think there's nothing wrong with it. And I think we've all been there. You know, you've been to a game, big sing along, lose a bit of your voice. But I think, you know, everyone can sing. I want to talk about that. Well, I, I can say mm-hmm. that I'm the fourth best singer in my house. There are four that live here, and one of them's a, a 15 month old baby. <laughs> yeah. Mm. On the subject of sinning, we've obviously spoken about how you like Amy McDonald earlier. A question we had from Greg Parson before, mm. uh, who worked for SFA. What would be your choice of album to listen to in the car? Like a, mm. a, a road trip, a road trip. You're going on a road trip. What would be your, yeah. your go to album? Very much the. Depends on my mood, but um, I'm a bit of a product of my youth in terms of a lot of what I listen to. So I I, I listen a lot to um, to Jeff Lynne music. I don't know if people know who Jeff Lynne is, but Jeff Lynne was the guy behind ELO, uh, later the Travelling Wilburys, very successful producer with Roy Orbison and Tom Petty, people like that. But he has a very distinctive sound. And um, so, so ELO is definitely on my list. Um, some of Kate Bush's stuff from the, the 1970s, 1980s. See, I'm sort of dating myself on that, that kind of era. But there's, there's newer stuff as well. And um, I think I surprise a lot of people with, um, because I listen so much to German radio. Uh, obviously, Amy is, is on my list because, um, uh, you know, I, I love her music and, uh, and have all her albums. But some German music as well that I listen to. There's a guy called Herbert Grönemeyer, who's one of the most influential German artists. Most people in Scotland won't have heard of Herbert Grönemeyer, so I'll, I'll gloss over that one. Um, Does he do movie, movie scores? No, is that He possibly has done. Um, he was quite synonymous with the 2006 World Cup in Germany. A lot of the music that was used there was was Grönemeyer uh, music. But even I find myself um, humming along to a lot of new stuff that's probably not intended for my generation, like Dua Lipa. I, I, I like her music because I hear it a lot on the radio. Oh, yeah. And uh, so, so yeah, it's it's quite eclectic. Um, but I would say the the soft spot is for um, for the nineteen seventies. And there was a spell sort of between about nineteen seventy eight and nineteen eighty four, when I could pretty much tell you, probably still could, who was number one on the charts any particular week, and maybe even the top ten. And um, so, so yeah, that that's kind of my my era. Talk talk, another of my favourite bands from the 1980s um so yeah you know what i'm driving at you know where i'm i'm going with my musical taste there <laughs> and that ties in quite nicely with our showstopper question because roughly about 78 to 84 we need to avoid don't we john with the question well, yeah roughly, so, um, a, a wee bit later yeah, yeah well so the um we normally give people the chance to name the our best love and i know you've done a couple of these on okay the yeah the show so um mm. Give us an Aberdeen best living, but the twist is you cannot pick anyone um, from the Gothenburg squad. Okay, and, and would it would it be players I've seen in person, or would it just be be could it be before my time? Could it be seen in person, preferably? Players I've seen in person, and not mentioning the Gothenburg squad. Okay, so the the goalkeeper would be Theo Snelders. Um, let's try and give you a back four. Uh, back four might be um, Stuart McKimmy. Um, let's think of a couple of central defenders uh, who would... Andrew Considine's got to be in there. I think Erin would agree with that. She's nodding. Yet. I would. So, I was hoping so, that he was so, going to get so, I think he's so, brilliant. 
So Andrew, Andrew, Andrew Considine I'll have as one of my central defenders. Um, the left back is going to be Jim Hermiston, who was one of my early heroes uh, from the 1970s. We'll put Jim at left back. Um, the central defender beside Andrew Considine, we'll give that to, we'll give that to Brian Irvin, who I think yes. was, a, was a really good Aberdeen servant. So Brian Irvin and, and Andrew Considine. He was um, my favourite player growing up when I first started yeah. supporting the Dons. Lovely guy as well. A really yes. nice, gentle giant. You know, just a really, really nice bloke. Um, I'm a former guest in the podcast yes. as well. So I'm, ah, really I'm glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. No, I had a very nice chat with Brian one night in Inverness after a game. I, I remember when he came up to um, to, to, to check in with a, with Guy McAllister, uh, who was working for us that, that night. Um, you were the previous guest too, so... Yeah, yeah. I know ah, great. Know. Good, yeah, yeah. good, good to hear. You've got all the, the good people on the show. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm thrilled. Um, I'm going to get Drew Jarvie in because he was my my real hero as uh, as a, a young Aberdeen fan. And you know, Drew was just your footballing everyman. And uh, you know, what a great player too. If he'd had a bit more pace, he would have been a Scotland regular. But he didn't quite have the pace. But he certainly had the the skill. So I'm going to get Drew in somewhere. I'm just not quite sure if he's going to go up front or if he's going to go in midfield. Joe Harper has to be in there as well because. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. Joey was absolutely the king, and uh, you know there was nobody as good as as Joey. So so let's let's imagine. So I'm going to put Drew in midfield because I need to have Joey, and I need to have a, to have Hans Hillhaus because yeah, um, yeah. I don't know that there've been many better Aberdeen players. I'm also next to Drew. I'm going to have this very talented midfield setup of Drew Jarvie and Zoltan Varga who was the, the Hungarian king who came to Aberdeen for a very short period in the 1970s and just absolutely dazzled everybody. So Zoltan Varga, Drew Jarvi, and um, I've got two wide players who I need to get in. So one of them is going to be Arthur Graham, who was a really good Aberdeen winger of the, the 1970s, bumper, as we called him. And there's one place left, and I'm, I'm going to have to think to see who's going to get that one place. Um... I'm I'm thinking of the non the non Gothenburg players. Uh, who would you give that to? And I'm gonna give you know who I'm gonna give that one to because I think he was an, a slightly underrated Aberdeen player. I'm gonna give that to Billy Stark because I think he was an Aberdeen player who got a bit overlooked, um, came right after the Gothenburg period, but was a fabulous player. I know that I'm I'm not particularly strong defensively in midfield there, but I'll I'll take that as a team that would be great to watch. It's fine because that front two you. Know, They'll, they'll score all the goals. You'd so hope so, yeah. So <laughs> You'd hope so. Doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. The remarkable thing with Aberdeen signed Hans Hillers when you think about it now, he was a European Cup winner 18 months previously with PSV Eindhoven. I mean, that's Crazy. the equivalent of Aberdeen signing Mbappe these days. <laughs> no, I, I, that, no, it's it's true. That's what it's like. And, and you know, I remember at the time, it was obviously a lot of money at the time. And it all came down to the fact that Alex Smith was quite worldly and watched a lot of Dutch football on his TV in St. John's Terrace in Aberdeen. Um, and Aberdeen actually had, most people don't realise this, Aberdeen had cable before almost anybody else in the UK and that meant access to this channel that showed the Dutch football every week and, and that's how it came about, that's how it all started that he was well aware of Heelhouse in a way that most people weren't What was the 80s for Dutch football in Aberdeen Yeah, yeah <laughs> It's ideal yeah. Yeah. Um, that, That's usually the showstopper so unless anyone else has anyone else they want, they want to ask, Scott Can I just say one more thing, we've no, we've no mentioned it yet 
Oh, Tom Rogan <laughs> scoring against Aberdeen. Oh, yeah. yeah. Goal, goal. He mentions That's it every week. It's embarrassing. <laughs> it's like well, Derek was doing the playoff that weekend, Hamilton versus Dundee United. He wasn't focused on that. Well, well the, funny, the funny thing is, I, I was doing the playoff, and I was at Hamden for that game. It was my last game as a fan in Scotland before leaving. And, um, yeah, it, it was a, a sickener. But I still say, and um, some people have debated the point, I remember I was sitting main stand to the left of it so and with the Aberdeen fans there and I still swear that I saw a bolt of lightning just a couple of seconds before Rogic let fly with that goal almost like it was from the heavens or something and um, of course you know we all just trudged out and thought oh my goodness you know it was um, so close but uh, well done Celtic was Yuri Geller at that game maybe like Yuri Geller now like Uh, Yuri Geller has has a hand in these types of things maybe but no, uh, no, no, like... no, no, nobody else seems to have seen the, the bolt of lightning, and I, and I wonder now if I imagined it, but I, I, I don't think I did. Um, I, I just saw this lightning in there just before he before he let fly. And to be fair, Rogic is a very nice guy. I got to know him a little bit when I was working there, and uh, yeah, a nice bloke. But um, yeah, didn't want him to score on that particular occasion. <laughs> He's a bit of a, a swear word. The game. Yeah, yeah. He's a bit of a swear word in the podcast. We get reminded. Uh-huh. Every yeah. pod we do, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> it's it's the least acceptable word. <laughs> yeah, it's it's worse than actually swearing. <laughs> like you can swear, say whatever you want, but don't say. Scott, Scott couldn't. He couldn't R. resist. Couldn't resist yeah, Scott, couldn't. could you? No, but I actually no. tied in quite nicely in your last game, even though it was a disappointment. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, just want to say thanks, Derek, for agreeing to come back on because you're in season two of yes. the podcast a long time ago, obviously. Um, so I appreciate it. Hopefully, again, if you would like to come on in the future at some point, that would be great. Maybe we'll talk about Aberdeen more. Yeah. In terms of uh, the glory years and everything. Maybe like that. after we win the Scottish Cup next uh, May, we'll do a special. Yes. Yes. And that... Scott, Brown, Scott Brown scores the winner. That's what we're. Yeah. I'm pleased to hear that 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 your crystal ball, Aaron, and and your crystal ball, John, um, is working. And yeah, we'll revisit that in May. And I no, thank. Have to win the league as well, and that one's not going quite as I'd hoped. But you never know. <laughs> I'm just oh, going to be Aberdeen oh. and Hamden again because we seem to do well against Aberdeen and Hamden. It's brilliant. Does seem to, oh, does yeah. seem to happen, doesn't it? Yeah. Maybe Hamden can get redeveloped. Maybe <laughs> 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 find it somewhere else. Yeah. Um, Park Red oh. back over. Park Red again, please. Listen, well, good it's luck right. to Scotland on Friday night. Massive yep. game, and hopefully mon- Monday coming will be a Hamden playoff party. Yeah. Yep. Fingers think, crossed. Yeah. If we get a win on Friday night, I think Monday will be hopefully great fun. Yeah. Apart from the fact it's a Monday and we don't like Monday night games, apart from Derek. I'm I'm in my birthday celebration period now, so it's part of it. Erin, you are always in your birthday celebration period. You celebrated last last year's birthday about a month ago. It started on Friday, just passed, and it'll finish on the 21st. What? And it'll be Christmas. Wait, wait. Right, hang on. The actual birthday, you don't need to give the date unless you want cards and all that from yeah, the last week on Wednesday, it's the 17th. Not secret. Right, okay, well, you've given the date, okay. So, so that's you say, I, say, I interviewed you. Yeah. Wow. Sure, it's all your fault. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, Hamden, yeah. part of my birthday celebrations. Dundee United away, part of my birthday celebrations. There's a lot going on. You're always celebrating, to be fair, Erin. There's always something. Well, I wasn't celebrating any goals on Saturday, was I? No, no. Erin, come on. Um, so, 
we had a bit of FIFA chat earlier, later on in the week as well. We've got a football manager special as well. So there's a wee kind of theme there as well. So look out for that. We've got Stuart Mill on, not the Aberdeen Stuart Mill, as a lot of people have been asking. Not that one. The researcher for football manager in Scotland. And also, oh, we need to give a shout, Jeff Webb will be on the podcast, whose book came out today, Scotland's Lost Clubs. So if you're looking for a present for anybody this year, get it. The link was posted there on Twitter. It's going to be a tremendous book. I'm looking forward to reading it myself. And I think, John, you've got it as well ordered. Um, yeah, I'm, I've just uh, um, I've got it in my basket on Amazon. Didn't get a chance to finalise it before this podcast, but I'll, I'll certainly be buying it for a mate for his Christmas. Um, and next year for Christmas, buy um, Scotland's Swedish Adventures. In fact, buy that in the summer, because that's when it's out. Aye, well, buy when it's out. Aye, calm down, John. Let's move it out yet. Come on. Right, like thanks again. <laughs> aye, well, aye. That's Christmas. I'll get it. Thanks, right, cheers, everyone. Cheers, Thank guys. You. Thank you. Cheers, guys. Thanks, bye. Thank you. <laughs>